Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be looking at the 2001 movie Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was directed by Michael Bay and stars Kate Beckinsale, Ben Affleck, and Josh Hartnett in a love triangle set around the events before, during, and after the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. The next day, the United States entered World War II when they declared war on the Empire of Japan. Oh, and I'll go ahead and spoil some of the fiction right now. That love triangle in the movie, it's not real. To help us separate fact from fiction in the film, I'll be joined by historian and author Marty Morgan, who has been on previous episodes of Based on a True Story to cover movies like The Longest Day, Saving Private Ryan, and of course, the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers and The Pacific, the latter of whom is also one of the numerous TV, film, and game projects that Marty has worked on. Before we chat with Marty, though, it's time to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true. That means one is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Pearl Harbor was not the only place the Japanese planned for the attack in Hawaii. Number two, only two American pilots got into the air during the attack at Pearl and they later went on to fly during the Doolittle Raid. Number three, Kermit Tyler concluded the radar was observing B-17s and not Japanese aircraft about to attack. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right. Now it's time to connect with Marty Morgan about the historical accuracy of Pearl Harbor. We've covered a lot of World War II movies over the years, but it has been a little while since I've had you on the show. And one thing I've started doing since the last time that we talked is to kick things off with an overall letter grade for historical accuracy. So... We take a step back to look at Pearl Harbor from a historical perspective. What grade would you give it? F minus. F minus. Okay. That's Final like I've had a Z. <laughs> oh, before. I didn't realize that was possible. <laughs> I didn't realize it was an option either, but option. yeah, I mean, we're making it up. So <laughs> I don't mean to be too cruel about the movie, but um, it doesn't it doesn't take a scholar to recognize and observe that the 2001 motion picture Pearl Harbor. Uh, had deep historical inaccuracies. It had, uh, as an overall um, characterization of the film, it had a basic contempt for the actuality of the historical time period that it was presenting that um, shows through very painfully um, in all of the set piece elements of the story. And I've divided it into four set piece elements, and that's element number one, which is the United States pre-war, sort of within a universe of U.S. Army fighter pilots. I would characterize, I would describe set piece two as the U.S. military, the U.S. Eagle Squadrons in service in the United Kingdom prior to Pearl Harbor. Set piece number three is Pearl Harbor. Set piece number four is the Doolittle Raid. 
And um, within the context of all four of those historical set pieces, there are, um, and again, I don't want to be terrible, but there are so many deep historical inaccuracies that were very clearly produced by um, a contempt for historical accuracy on the part of the filmmakers. I realize that those are some pretty powerful words and, you know, that's, those are fighting words, uh, but I, I can't think of a more rational way of presenting it without engaging in histrionics. I, I am given to being a little histrionic about this movie from time to time. And the more balanced, level-headed side of my character has to take over for just with this setting to say that the, the movie, as, um, as an, it, it has created a legacy that's still with us today, and the unfortunate legacy of that is, I mean, the movie is recognized by posterity as being one of the biggest failures of historical accuracy that there's ever been depicted on the big screen. That's, that's pretty telling right there. <laughs> well, you mentioned the Doolittle raid, and, and early on in the movie, we do see Alec Baldwin's version of Major Doolittle telling Ben Affleck's character, Rafe McCauley, that only a few British pilots are all that stand between Hitler and a total victor in Europe. And of course, we'll get to the Doolittle raid itself later on. I was mentioning mostly Major Doolittle there. He's kind of introduced as a character here. Because at this point, the movie doesn't really mention it by late, uh, by name, but the impression I got is that it's talking about uh, the Battle of Britain. Uh, Doolittle mentioned something about how it's only a matter of time before the U.S. is pulled into war, and then uh, Rafe has been accepted into what the movie calls the British Eagle Squadron, so he heads over to England. Did the U.S. military let their pilots go to England to help fight against the Germans? That's a hard... Uh, um, it's hard to say either yes or no to that, because... There's, um, it would be wrong of me not to point out that the way that it's depicted in the movie is inaccurate. This is the first time I've said this for this podcast, and I'm already bored with myself, and I'm sure you are too, um, because it almost everything that we will bring up to discuss, I will begin as my preamble, I will begin by saying the way that it is depicted in the movie is historically inaccurate. And I, um, I don't want those words to become completely meaningless, but the, this movie confronts us with so many fundamental inaccuracies that I'm going to have to repeat that statement over and over and over again. And so the way that you presented the question was, did the U.S. military allow um, pilots to serve? And the answer is no, the U.S. military did not. The United States was under intense obligations to remain neutral at a very critical time in that era mm. prior to December 1941 when the president was obviously aware that the United States would ultimately be drawn into um, the, the conflict as a combatant power and that the United States um, would have to begin preparing. But he also understood that it was going to be necessary for us to maintain uh, neutrality or at least the theater of neutrality as long as we possibly could just by virtue of the fact that we weren't militarily completely ready for, for taking on three very powerful uh, nations. Uh, and because of that, uh, we had to adhere to strict standards of neutrality. And that meant that the United States military could not support the RAF's mission in attempting to fight off the Luftwaffe. The way that, that Eagle's service in the Eagle Squadrons was elaborated was that aviators, sometimes aviators, sometimes people who had not even yet received flight training, they were um, 
they were forced to cross the border into Canada so that they could then present themselves at a recruiting station so that they could join the Eagle Squadrons. So they had to be fully, if they had been in the military, they had to be fully severed from that service at the time that they crossed the border to go to Canada to go to a recruiting station. So you had, um, you had aviators, not a lot. The majority of the men who served in the Eagle Squadrons um, were, were not prior service military avi- aviators, either in the Navy or the Army. Um, the ones that did that, though, they had to be fully separated before their volunteer service in the Eagle Squadrons. It's depicted in the movie as, of course, uh, Jimmy Doolittle is standing there, um, portrayed by Alec Baldwin. It's so it's such a weird, like, elephant in the room now for Alec Baldwin to come up because a point I frequently make about this is that there are a few acting performances in this film that I think are good. And I think Alec Baldwin's one of them. People will immediately howl because this is not the kind of character that Jimmy Doolittle presented. It's very much an Alec Baldwin being Alec Baldwin. and. Alec Baldwin, I mean, I feel like we, we should now at least be honest with ourselves enough to recognize he's one of our greatest living actors. Something terrible happened. He's done forever now. Um, and his performance in this movie is one of the only performances that I found convincing. Anyway, um, but it's depicted as Jimmy Doolittle, portrayed by Alec Baldwin, going, your transfer came through to the Eagle Squadron. And off you go. That is not how it worked. The way that it would never have been someone in uniformed service receiving the way was receiving what's presented in the movie as being a transfer assignment or a temporary duty assignment of any kind. That's not how it worked. The United States would have been in a lot of trouble if we had allowed a situation like that to exist. And there, um, the era that kind of characterizes the period from um, the beginning of the Battle of Britain until America's entry in the conflict. That period is characterized by an American military that is walking a very delicate line, an American government that is walking a very delicate line and trying its best not to put so much as a toe over the line of neutrality. The reality, though, is that we did, we frequently did, and in fact, ultimately, President Roosevelt's policy, his declared policy was anything short of war. Those, that's the takeaway quote, short of war. And I often use that as a means of describing his character as being uh, decisive and um, prescient because he recognized there's no way we're getting out of this alive. There's no way that we're going to watch war destroy Europe and Asia and, and then where, during which we will sit, sit by and watch as a bystander. He understood that that was not going to happen. And the president understood also, um, I have a country that is not unanimously in support of being involved in another European war or another world war. And I also have a defense complex that is not prepared either. Um, it's also often very troubling for me when, when conversations about this time period come up, because I find that um, a lot of mythology has crept into that, into that thinking. And I should just make this broader point. That is that I find that mythology has crept into every corner of the subject in, in such a way, in such a pronounced way, as the mythology becomes the dominant factor. And I'm going to give, give you one example from last month about the Eagle Squadrons. So I lead these tours in Europe every year. Um, I had 
two years off because of COVID and I got back to it just last month. Um, so it was the first time, for example, that I was in Normandy for the D-Day anniversary since 2019. And um, it was, you know, 2020, D-Day 2020 was the first time that I wasn't in Normandy on the anniversary, 26 years. So it sort of, it, it sort of felt very different wow. to be homeward bound, to be homebound and not be in Normandy. It was great to be in Normandy last month for the anniversary. Um, but something interesting happens. The trips that I leave for National Geographic are trips that start in London. And as a part of our London guided experience, I will take people around to sites and locations that were associated with World War II that can be found there. I used to live in London. I went to school in London. And so I'm kind of familiar with all of these sites. And I take people to places like HMS Belfast, the Cabinet War Rooms, the Imperial War Museum. We take a trip up to Bletchley Park to talk about code breaking. Um, during which um, people only want to ask me about the imitation game movie we should talk about at some point. Um, because I, when I was at King's College, I specialized in Bletchley Park intercepts of Yugo transmissions. And when the movie came out, I kind of liked that movie. That movie is absurd. It's yeah. so, I actually so much talked absurd. to uh, Mark, who is he runs the podcast for Bletchley Park about, oh, about yeah. that. Yeah, so it's fascinating to learn all yeah. about going on there. That's that's. I would love to go to Bletchley. I, I need to. I need to take that tour. Based on what sounds like. Very, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. But. No, that's all right. It's a Bletchley is a very special place, yeah. and I still like that movie. But that movie, like all movies, is not a documentary, right? Um, right. Just as this one is not. But anyway, so last month I was doing the standard tour around London before we crossed the ferry to go to France, and as a part of that, we stop in Grosvenor Square, which is the site of the old U.S. Embassy, and there are some memorials and monuments there. And in the middle of the park at Grosvenor Square, there is a memorial to the Eagle Squadrons, the three American, uh, the three RAF squadrons that were composed of American volunteers. And I tend to go up and give my tour group a little bit of sort of a preamble and a little bit of description about Eagle Squadron stuff. And it begins as a general description of the Battle of Britain and the Blitz. And I found that as the conversation began, I was answering a lot of questions about the movie Pearl Harbor. And I found myself saying the way that it's depicted in the movie Pearl Harbor is not entirely historically accurate, which is the, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life repeating those words. Um, but I feel like this is on a macro intellectual point, something that should be brought up here and now with you because of the fact that over the years, over the two decades since this movie came out, I'm, I have over and over again heard from people that want to trivialize the complaints about historical accuracy and things like that and say, oh, why can't you just relax and enjoy it as a movie? And, and why can't, you know, just you pinheads and your historical accuracy, why is it that you have to make such a big deal about it? It didn't help at all that, you know, I've been for 15 years now leading tours to Pearl Harbor and I specialize in the subject. And um, I have over my time period in leading tours to Pearl Harbor and dealing with the topic and publishing kind of a lot about the subject. I have encountered a lot of people that worked on that movie. I did not work on that movie. I have encountered lots of people who have. And if that movie comes up and they're present, it, a fight is about to start because they are so over it. Um, I have two people that I encounter in Hawaii every time that if the movie comes up, they sort of start rolling up their sleeves, like, all right, let's do this. They, they get quite combative. They get quite confrontational. And they're, at this stage, unapproachable. They are unwilling to um, 
they're unwilling to consider any conversations about historical accuracy because I think they have just been broken. Their will has been broken over this movie. And it's because for 20 years now, all they get are people who are casting off the occasional sardonic um, one-liner about the movie. And they, they defend the movie. It's fascinating to me to watch it because they'll defend it. Well, you know, movies can't all be perfect. They come up with a standard battery of counterarguments. Movies mm. can't all be perfect. Um, the important thing here is that we got, you know, the word out. This was a blockbuster. A, lots of, a lot of people saw it and it made money for the film industry. And uh, what is the one quote I hear frequently? A rising tide floats all boats. It's this suggestion that mm. the movie Pearl Harbor would create this broader rising tide of positivism about- There's no such thing subject. as bad publicity type thing. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. And- um, when I was standing there entertaining questions about the movie Pearl Harbor at Grosvenor Square in front of the Eagle Squadron Memorial last month, I remember thinking, this is the, this is the powerful argument. The argument that I, that I think needs to be made about movies that um, make these conscious decisions not to honor historical accuracy. Not all, movie will, no, not all movies will um, approach historical accuracies. Some do better than others. The ones that don't, when they're bigger and they're more powerful, like this movie or like Saving Private Ryan, what they end up doing is they end up replacing an actual historical narrative with the movie's narrative. Uh, mm -hmm. It's to the extent that I remember there was an era before this movie came out. Um, and that era from my childhood, I remember very clearly the, the movie that dominated the conversation was the movie Torah, Torah, Torah from 1970. Yeah. Great movie. And um, it came out the year after I was born. I grew up kind of with it because I grew up on military bases. They would they would play this movie every December 7th. And I yeah. sat through it many, many times uh, before I was even 10 years old. And what I remember is the the way that the discussion moved forward then. And then I remember the way that the, move, the discussion moved forward after May of 2001 when the movie Pearl Harbor came out. And what it looks like to me, I remember all of the discussions that were created by Torah, Torah, Torah prior to 2001. And it was discussions about historical inaccuracies that are in that. So that there are tropes and falsehoods that were um, released into the wild by Torah, Torah, Torah that were still around when Pearl Harbor came out. And in fact, there's, a, there's one that I'm, I'm not going to mention everything, but I am going to mention just a couple of things as examples from this movie. Um, the one that I find sort of the most alarming, but also at the same time, an, an intellectual case study that is definitely worth mentioning. And that is that the uh, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto character, as depicted in this movie, uses part of a quote from the movie Tora Tora Tora. <laughs> and the quote is, I fear that we have awakened a sleeping giant. And this, the thing that I find troubling about that is that we now know for certain that the, the, the more extensive version of that quote that was used in Torah, 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 which was, I fear that all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Those are words that Admiral Yamamoto never spoke or wrote. Those are words that were entirely created by the screenplay writer for Torah, Torah, Torah. And it fascinates me because this is, this is how, this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of the creation of mythologies and so folklore. And it's because the quote was created by a screenplay writer for Torah, Torah, Torah. And then it was cited in the movie Pearl Harbor in 2001. And so it continues on into the future. Further and further. 
Yeah. And I mean, it's this fission reaction that is occurring of all of what might seem like minor historical inaccuracy questions that will just continue popping and spreading with the passage of time. Another big argument that I frequently get for the, from the people that I know in Hawaii who are quick to defend the movie because they were involved with it, that's the only reason that they're defending it, it's because they were part of it and they're sick and tired of being attacked by about it. Um, a standard argument that they're making is that, yes, but people suddenly got interested in Pearl Harbor uh, as a result of this movie. And here we are 20 years later, and I don't believe that I can draw a line of connectivity with that thought. Hmm. I don't believe that this movie created an, a new era of enthusiasm for Pearl Harbor. Certainly not the way, not comparable to the way that the movie Saving Private Ryan created a new enthusiasm for D-Day. Yeah, I know uh, we've talked about that. Yeah, how, how that yeah. huge, huge impact from the movie because of that. I'm still working. I'm still leading tours to Normandy now after all, you know, decades after Private Ryan came out. And I'm still talking about Private Ryan. And Private Ryan ain't great. When it comes to historical accuracy, it's, it's, I think it's doing more harm than good. It's on a, it's, this movie is on a different level than Private Ryan on many levels. But what I, the reason I'm bringing up the point is to say that Private Ryan, for whatever reason, it resonated with a specific audience. And that specific audience was primarily younger men. It created a new era of World War II reenacting that didn't exist before. It created an, an enormous amount of enthusiasm. And that's in many ways still with us today. I don't think Pearl Harbor did that. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's fascinating to kind of compare those two and and how that. I, I guess I the, the that quote that, that's a great point there that you know you just this movie and then based on that and then it, it kind of makes me wonder if that quote is always going to be tied to Pearl Harbor to the event and people are just going to continue to make anytime they <laughs> any other movies that are made in the future if they're going to continue to include things like that quote and just get further and further and further away. Uh, from that path, like you were talking about. It's, it's definitely cited endlessly even now, um, to the point that um, from the perspective of the, of the bottom-feeding tour guide that leads tours on, on Oahu that, that explores December 7th as a general subject, I can assure you that every single tour that I lead in Hawaii, someone will inevitably, like, they, they spend a lot of time listening to me telling stories, and I think people get get a little weary of the one-sidedness of that. They get a little tired of the presentary quality of the tour guide that's going here and this and here and that, here and that. And they'll eventually, sometimes they like to like toss in a little, hey, here's a little fact that I know. And the one that gets tossed in the most is, uh, I fear that we've wakened a a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve. Um, It's forced me to adopt a personal policy. And the personal policy for years before the adoption of my personal policy, I used to go, well, actually, and I used to do <laughs> that one thing that nobody ever wants to hear. Nobody ever wants to hear some pinhead that goes, well, you know, actually, that was created entirely by, and the person that created that line ultimately then went on to describe how he created that line because he needed something to close out the movie. And that was the perfect way to do it. And he was inspired by a few things that Yamamoto actually said and actually wrote, but those words, Yamamoto did not say you're right. People don't like to have the tour guide just sort of slam dunk them like that immediately. And so the personal policy I have adopted is that when it comes up, I will often either just not acknowledge the statement and like look away where I obviously am reacting in a non-committal way and I move on to where it's very, very obvious that something's going on. 
<laughs> or I will say, hey, if you would like to know more about that quote, I have done a little bit of writing on the subject. Just let me know. And when I present it like that, that's just easy. I'm baiting people on, um, I'm baiting the fish up onto the boat when I do that because they immediately go, well, what are you referring to? And then I'll go, well, actually, and then I'm right back to where I started. <laughs> um, so what I am attempting to do more and more now is just not, is just to not acknowledge it. And what I have learned is that what the world, I know what the world wants and what the world doesn't want. And what the world doesn't want is what I have to say about this Pearl Harbor quote. What the world does want is the quote. I mean, the the end of the, it is a great quote. I mean, even great if it's quote. it is a great quote. I, I will give them that. <laughs> I will, it's a great way to end the movie. That's for sure. <laughs> a perfect way to end the movie. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, EarnIn. Um, uh, speaking of things from the Japanese perspective, in Pearl Harbor, the first time that we see things from the Japanese military's perspective is a discussion about how war is inevitable. The Americans have cut off the oil that's their lifeline. They only have enough for 18 months. So war is the only option from their perspective. And so a massive sudden strike to wipe out the American Pacific fleet in a single attack at Pearl Harbor is the only way that they can succeed. And that's basically how the movie sets up the decision to attack Pearl. How well did the movie do explaining the reason for that attack? Uh, C minus. It's, it's, it's a decent um, example of exposition. There's a lot that's got to be um, threshed out through this little section of its, its dialogue. And also um, the scene you're referring to is the scene that of all scenes in this movie, it, is, it has a cringe factor that I put right up there with, you know, the scene when the pilots are getting their inoculations from the, this little girl squad, the, the nurses. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is as if it was written by children in terms of the way that it's set up and everyone is a complete caricature. Mm. Um, everyone is a complete ridiculous, laughable cliche. The dialogue's awful. That scene, the, Proposal scene, a couple of other scenes in the movie, but the scene where there's this exposition about why we must do this is so very odd and uncomfortable for me to sit through because they filmed it at Fort MacArthur at San Pedro and the Los Angeles area. And the way that they set the place up, just because it has sort of a military look about it, but it's set up as this very peculiar outdoor meeting. 
they were outside. I was wondering, like, why did they meet outside? All these, okay, I guess they yeah. just have their meetings outside. It's nice weather, I guess. <laughs> right, and it, and it strikes me as even stranger because of depicting Yamamoto was the um, commanding officer of the Japanese Combined Fleet. And it's always created in a very expositional, like, we must do this because, and, I, and my first thought is like, why is he trying to talk his staff into it? He didn't have to talk his staff into this. It seems to me that that, the entire concept of this scene, which comes across very comic book, much of what's going on here comes across as very comic book in terms of its cliched settings where um, every possible piece of set dressing that could be crammed into a camera shot is crammed into a camera shot where everything is a cliche. Everything is over the top. There can't be a moment of dialogue where the camera's not in motion. It's like, um, it's like the independent film buffs worst nightmare because in or like i i must i'd love to know how french people react to this because french people are notorious for like having movies that are set at a dinner party where everyone sits around and talks about their feelings uh and that's the entire movie and i'm not ridiculing that i am saying though that they're depending more and more on dazzle and stunt um within each shot there's a point in the um in the Eagle Squadron scenes where it's the Ben Affleck character and then the, the wing commander or group commander, they're walking together and they cut to a cutaway shot of an unnamed character who has one line of dialogue and his line, and his line of dialogue was something to the effect of, um, five didn't come back. And as they do it, it's the camera angle has a sweep to it. And as it's sweeping around him, three spitfires are flying overhead perfectly through the shot, perfectly framed through the shot. So that there can't even be a line of establishing dialogue from an unnamed character without it looking like a Faith Hill video. And that's what's going on with this out, this peculiar outdoor meeting, which I'm, I'm still sort of not understanding who's supposed to be in this meeting. Is it supposed to be Yamamoto and the, and the naval general staff to come? Is it supposed to be, is it naval general staff or is it the combined fleet and its staff? It's certainly not an imperial cabinet meeting with, with the emperor and his civilian and military staff, which is where it seems like conversations like this would have been playing out. You would think it would be involved in the decision to go to start a war. <laughs> yeah. Rather than a naval commander talking to all of his subordinates, which is what it comes across as. And I get it. Um, I should like, at this point, just mention that there are some problems in the movie that I shouldn't even mention because they had no choice. There are a lot of these they had no choice type moments. Like there are lots of shots where you have spitfires that aren't their correct model. Um, they had no choice. You're going to take what, spit, what spitfires are still flying. It might not be the right model Spitfire, but that's what it is. There, like, there are shots where you can see the angled flight deck of aircraft carriers from the 1960s during the jet age. <laughs> I almost, I don't even want to mention stuff like that because they had no choice. There are yeah. shots where you see it's a modern aircraft carrier and they're flying off. Of they had no choice. The USS Enterprise continues to no longer exist, just as does USS Yorktown um, and USS um, uh, Hornet. They had no choice. There are times where the historical accuracy matters are matters where the filmmaker had no choice. He had to use a late war Spitfire because that's what was available. He had to use um, an aircraft carrier from the 1960s because that was available. However, there are areas where the filmmaker had choices to make. And what I find is that this movie is notorious for the filmmakers being guided mainly by interests in creating a comic book 
and certainly not being guided by interests in creating a movie that at least even acknowledged the historical time period because the movie shows such deep and complete contempt for historical accuracy that there are moments where I have to wonder what it was like to work on the film. I didn't work on the film. I've worked on projects like this and I have been in settings even quite recently where I'm dealing with people that have a direct contempt for the historical accuracy where they'll hire somebody to be um, the historical advisor. And what quickly develops is an hostility between the people who feel like I've got a job to do. I've got a movie I have to make. And you as the historical advisor, you are interfering with our progress toward the completion of this project. Um, I've seen that happen many, many times, and I've been on the wrong side of that many times. And it's pretty clear that that's what happened here. When at the top of the pyramid, where, you know, inhabited by Michael Bay, there was, um, there was a decision to like, I think, lean into uh, the people that he was more used to working with, which is why this looks more like an action movie than anything. It, mm. Strangely, it, and it also it's a movie that doesn't know what it wants to look like. Is it in, is it in, uh, is it in this piece of historical fiction or is it uh, like a docudrama? Or is it an action film? Or is it the creepiest three-way love triangle that has ever existed? Yes to all. <laughs> it's yes to all of you both. <laughs> yes, well, yes I, I mean, if, if that obviously, uh, that wasn't how uh, the... Uh, Japanese decided to attack Pearl Harbor. Can you set up some historical context around like the, the actual reasons why the decision to attack Pearl happened? Yeah, the Japanese were uh, engaged in a kinetic ground combat maneuver war in China. It was tying up national resources to a significant level. The United States, as well as other world powers, were protesting against the continuing Japanese war in China. And our protests ultimately after 1940 came in the form of a series of embargoes. And the embargoes had a very negative effect. It's funny to be narrating this here in 2022 when I could just as easily be describing something that's happening um, on the other side of the world right now. But um, the Japanese were, the Japanese had been cut off basically from North and South America, not all of South America, but North America and Europe uh, because of this, the war that they were fighting in China. The Japanese were, were painfully feeling the embargoes, particularly of oil and then ultimately steel, uh, because the Japanese home islands are uh, home islands that are rich in certain things and um, scarce in others. The home islands are scarce in terms of um, oil, tin, and rubber resources, as well as steel. The, since those resources are, that's a laundry list of the most important items that a military needs, the Japanese were in the era of the sanctions that were imposed upon them by specifically the United States, the Japanese began looking around the neighborhood that surrounded them in Asia, and they designated an area immediately to the south of the, Jap the extent of the Japanese empire. The extent of the Japanese empire at this stage uh, was the island of Taiwan, Formosa, um, which was annexed into the Japanese empire. The uh, it would ultimately be an asset of the Japanese Empire. The Japanese recognized that a zone existed to the south in the Dutch East Indies that was um, where these resources were abundant. And the Japanese understood that an attack toward the south that could take control of this resource zone, as they designated it, would allow the Japanese themselves to maintain control over resources that they needed to win the war in China. And because of that, they were they were in the position of needing those resources because they had been cut off from those resources. Much of the, there was a great irony to 
1937, when the Japanese dramatically escalated the war in China um, with an attack on Shanghai, there was an irony to the fact that there were American warships in port at uh, Shanghai and American warships that were ultimately affected by the Japanese expansion of military activity. Uh, and that the Japanese were firing shells that came from steel that they had purchased from the United States. And they were flying aircraft that were powered by petroleum products that had been imported from the United States. <laughs> and so the United States understood very well that when the Japanese began the major escalation of the war in China, that a great way to restrict and limit that ongoing war was to cut the Japanese off from the resources that they, were, that they needed. So we cut them off. They began looking um, toward a replacement. They realized that just to the south in the Dutch East Indies, that there was a resource zone where these resources were abundant. And the Japanese realized that if they launched an aggressive military campaign to take control of the resource zone, that that would then provide them with the tools and the resources that they would need to win the war in China. The only problem was that snatching the resource zone was going to be complicated because it would require the Japanese to begin war with not just the Americans, but the British and the Dutch as well. So the Japanese understood that, well, when we begin, when we make our move, when we attempt to capture the resource zone, the American Pacific fleet is going to interfere with us. The United States will probably declare war. And the United States is an extremely powerful modern Navy. Typically, people like to imagine that the American military during the Great Depression was one that was starved of everything that it needed, one that was weak. When in reality, um, only parts of the American military were like that. The United States Navy was one of the best navies in the entire world. It had prop what I would consider to be, um, in 1937, the most advanced fleet air arm of any navy in the world. Now, uh -huh. the Japanese would quickly pass us, uh, but we were, we were nothing to sneeze at at the time. And the Japanese understood that the American Navy would be in a position to interfere with their expansion to the south. And that when the Americans... Uh, attempted to attack as the Japanese reached for the the resource zone, the attack would come from a series of island outposts that would lead ultimately to the Philippines, and that the Philippines would be a major node for the American military to interfere with the Japanese military's campaign to capture the resource zone in the Dutch East Indies, and that the island outposts linking it all together were places like the territory of Hawaii and Guam. And so as the Japanese imagined launching this offensive, which they would ultimately refer to as the centrifugal offensive, they realized that it was going to require them to conduct a series of preemptive attacks that were designed to prevent the United States Navy from interfering with them as they pushed south to the Dutch East Indies. As time has gone by, we tend to photo we tend to focus on what happened on the island of Oahu on Sunday, December 7, 1941, where the Japanese conducted an attack on not just Navy facilities, but Army, Marine Corps facilities as well. They basically conducted attacks on all military installations on the island of Oahu. Pearl Harbor is only one of 14 different military installations that came under attack that day. It's the one that stands out as the most memorable because of the fact that the battleships were there. and Battleships like Oklahoma and Arizona, that they we suffer so terribly um, with the loss of those ships. And we experienced such high loss of life, over 1,100 on Arizona, over 400 on Oklahoma. Um, and that's why I understand, I understand why we focus on Pearl Harbor itself. But that neglects the fact that, we, that the Japanese attacked other parts of the island that day, and that the Japanese also, within the framework of a simultaneous attack, uh, launched attacks against Guam and the Philippine Islands, as well as Midway and then eventually Wake. 
The Japanese attacked many other places that were outside of American overseas holdings as well. And all of this was done um, to preempt an American military response to this major escalation of the war in Asia. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So they... It was kind of centered around oil and oil centered around the resources that they knew that they were going to need. Yeah. And in that respect, the movie does not present an inaccurate uh, it's just summary. extremely simplified. The movie did it. The, the movie did it far more concise than I just did it. But the college professor part of me comes through every single time and I can't help myself. Um, However, I understand why filmmakers sometimes struggle with moments like this, because that little monologue that I just provided about why Japan conducted the attack, what was that, three, four minutes long, maybe five? I don't know. I lost track of time. But filmmaker can't Can't just have five minutes of developing, we're going to do this attack because of this reason and that reason and that reason. And the filmmakers have to do it very quickly. I understand that. And the scene's not bad. It's the part that I just can't get over is, why are they outside? (laughs) <laughs> Why are these like sort of waving banners out there? And there, then there's a there's a battery at Fort MacArthur that's called Battery Osgood Farley, and it's it's a concrete battery that was covered with earth, so it looks like a hill. And then they just have like two sentries with rifles standing on that hill. And I'm like, none. It's very weird. None of it makes <laughs> sense. It all feels very it all feels very contrived. And I could almost just picture the way that it happened because I've had to deal with this myself. And that is that somebody in set design or the cinematography people, they look at a shot and they go, there's not enough going on here. We have to have texture. We have to have something interesting to look at. And they tend to to answer those questions as quickly and easily as they can, or they tend to respond to those challenges as quickly and easily as they possibly can. And what they tend to do is just sprinkle a bunch of stuff in the background. This movie is really bad for that. This movie is really bad for a cinematographer who has a bit of a reputation for um, spectacle. And he has, this movie is very reflective of the filmmaker's background in that, in that way, because just, just shot after shot where you just kind of have stuff sprinkled into it, even when it doesn't really make sense. And I think the frustration that I am dealing with here more than anything is this frustration of with the passage of time, we're moving farther and farther away. We're drifting away from sort of a an real and honest, undistorted vision of what happened that day. We're drifting away from that because of the way I tend to have the empiricist's view of the way that intellectual knowledge is accumulated with the passage of time. And it's looking more and more like my view is the incorrect view, because my view has always been, well, with the passage of time, and we get further and further further away from an historical moment, from the moment that it begins. When it began on Sunday, December 7th, 1941 at Pearl Harbor, it was first the news media trying to make sense of what happened. Then the military tried to make sense of it. And the military has operational operational security concerns, so the military can't really talk about it. The news media steps in. You get sort of a flamboyant and um, reporter's version of the story. And I have always thought in sort of the formulaic way that, okay, well then with the passage of a few decades, you get to a point where we're bringing the event into greater focus because more and more you're getting people like me who spend a lot of time studying a subject and we're reading more and more um, from a body of literature that's getting broader with each passing year where I have this the mistake of assuming that every year is going to provide a harvest of new intellectually worthwhile and useful books about December 7th and that all of these force, all of these things as they flow together 
they will give us a clearer picture of what happened. And that picture will only get clearer and clearer and clearer with the passage of time. And that ain't what happens. <laughs> What's yeah, happening is the opposite of that. The farther yeah. we get away from the, the moment, the more distorted it's getting. There was a period where I think it was brought as much into focus as it possibly could. And that was in the 1970s. And that, that was because there were still so many living participants. I mean, almost everybody that was there, there were still plenty of people still alive who experienced December 7th. And this movie, I don't think, this movie being made in the way that it was, being the movie that it is, it could not have been made in 1970. The only movie that could have been made in 1970 was Tora Tora Tora, which, although it has historical accuracy problems, it is far, far, far more accurate than this movie is. It's also very slow moving. It's also it's this slow burn with a lot of background, a lot of development. There's inaccuracy in there, but there's more accuracy than inaccuracy. And they could not have made something outrageous like this. Then I think because there were too many survivors around. When this movie came out, there were survivors around, which brings me to the point about Glenn Brazel. So my uncle, my late uncle Glenn Brazel, um, volunteered for the United States Army from Mobile, Alabama in 1938. He volunteered specifically to um, serve in the Hawaii division that was being formed by the United States Army at the time. And that ultimately resulted in him completing basic training and being transferred to the territory of Hawaii. Um, he was then assigned to D Company, the 27th Infantry Regiment of the U.S. Army's 25th Infantry Division. He was based at Schofield Barracks on Oahu. And he was on the island on December 7th. He was Army, so he wasn't down at the harbor. Um, he was on the island. He saw interesting and fascinating things that day, uh, but he wasn't at the harbor. When I was a kid, growing up in this era when there was still sort of a hangover from the movie Tora Tora Tora, a movie that I kind of consumed a lot of when I was a little kid. And then I was around Uncle Glenn, who was actually there. And I spent a lot of that poor man spent a lot of time being interrogated about December 7th by me from about 45 years ago when I was a little kid. And I had this experience in my in my youth of being raised in the company of somebody that was there that day. Um, and it led to later in life when I was an adult and I was intellectually interested in this subject matter. I spent time with him. I interviewed him. I did a lot of work with him and we had a, a, a strong relationship and he inspired me to a really important level toward a better understanding of what happened on December 7th. The unfortunate thing that happened was, so my Uncle Glenn was still alive in 2001 when this movie came out. I was working at a museum here in the New Orleans area at the time, and it was decided, um, they did this with Band of Brothers too, and that is that they had a, a premiere event for Band of Brothers on Utah Beach in, in, in Normandy, and they had a premiere event here associated with the museum. The same thing was done for Pearl Harbor. And because of that, the they wanted to invite Pearl Harbor veterans to come. That kind of landed on me as a responsibility. And I was like, well, my uncle is still alive. He lives in Mobile. He could drive over for the night. And I got a hotel room for him and I invited him and his wife to come over um, to, be a, to go with me to this premiere event. And I promise you, it was, I don't know if it was 10 minutes or 15 minutes in, but it was somewhere around there that I was like, oh my God, what have I done? And I was sitting next to him and I just kind of kept looking awkwardly over at my Uncle Glenn. And mercifully, um, at some point before the attack, he just kind of went, <laughs> and he passed out and he fell asleep. And I was like, I feel like this is for the best. And I just kind of let him sleep. But then the, the attack began and he kind of woke him up and he watched it. And um, it was weird after to have to like take him back to the hotel and chat a little bit about the movie uh, because it confused him a lot. And I can imagine 
I can only imagine how confusing it must have been because he, he was a member of the Pearl Harbor Veterans Association. He had gone to premiere events like that 30 years earlier and when Tora 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 came out. And he was at a stage in his life where I think he just like looked at the youthful world and he was like, I just don't understand. I don't get it. And the movie just didn't resonate with him. Uh, veterans were pretty vicious about this movie when it came out because of the historical inaccuracy problems. We're flirting with some of it. I gave a broader um, F minus grade right at the beginning of this. Uh, but since you brought up the meeting during which there's the exposition about why Japan has to attack the United States, um, I, I wanted to mention two things if I could. Um, and number one is that that scene was necessary. 20 years ago, it's much, much worse now, but 20 years ago, people needed to have it mansplained to them because the newer generation of people with uh, lower levels of historical literacy were going to be seeing this movie. And I don't think it was necessarily wrong of the filmmakers to realize, listen, we have to explain this to everybody. Otherwise, people would be like, why are they doing this? Because we're, we're moving through an era when historical literacy is declining. 20 years ago, I can see now when I look back to when I went to the premiere event for this movie, I can see the extent to which historical literacy was on the decline. I was at that point in my 30s, and I was a big fanatic about anything related to Pearl Harbor. Of course, partly because of the fact that I was um, in it and, and I had just recently get, um, finished my master's degree in history before this movie came out. I was working at a museum about World War II and my uncle was there. I, had, I was not like your average bear in terms of an interest um, in this subject matter. Almost everybody else had a significantly lower like enthusiasm level than I did. I'm not saying, I'm not speaking down like they weren't smart enough. I'm saying that they, they, the, they probably were a little aware that there had been a December 7th and they realized that it was important, but they didn't have like this broad, sensitive, um, meaningful understanding of it. It was, it was a, a process of ongoing historical superficialization was already at work 20 years ago to the point that this scene was necessary. We had to explain to people in a way that Tora 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 just didn't have to. Tora Tora Tora, by the 1970s, there were still so many living people and they were still living and they were still working. Some of them were still in the Navy, most, not very, very few, but some of them still in the military. For the most part, it wasn't necessary to go through long expositions about why Japan attacked America. In 2001, it was necessary. And you can only imagine if this movie had to be made today, um, the extent to which exposition would be required. Since I just said that, I just, you know, coughed up the words, if this movie was made today. Um, I've watched it a few times this week to prepare for this conversation. It's been kind of a long time since I looked at the film, but um, in watching it, I'm over and over again, like this movie, this movie couldn't be made today. Uh, for a number of reasons that we don't have to go into. But like the number one thing to me that really stood out was the use of a racially condescending pejorative that is just sprinkled throughout this movie um, in a way that you you would never get away with in 2022. And it's the, the word Jap. That is, um, it has been elevated in broader ethnocultural understanding as being um, equivalent with the N-word as a pejorative that is functionally unspeakable in public today. But when this movie was made in 2000 and 2001, that was a word that was in a part of sort of the, the vulgar, the common vulgar of everyday usage to the point where you don't see spasming and bending and flexing to get around the word like you would today. Mm. I also feel like there are um, a lot of 
gender roles and the way that they're depicted and also race and the way that it is depicted here is it it feels very jarring to be in 2010 in 2022 and look back at this movie from 2001 and see the way that some of these depictions of portrayals were presented publicly in one way um i would mention cuba gooding jr's character um in the film doris miller the movie uses the name dory instead of doris and we understand now that he did not go by Dory. His name was Doris, and his family called him Doris. The people that served with him called him Doris. There is still an argument about where Dory came from, but here's what I think. Not that you asked me, but what I think is that um, a common practice at the time was that um, African-American men were often not um, using the, an adult version of their name. The, most, the, the, the example that I use most frequently is that the name William is extremely common uh, for white men and African-American men in the United States. It was very common 80 years ago during World War II. When you see African-American soldiers who were killed in action in Europe, um, if their name was William, you do not see William on their headstone. You see Willie. Hmm. It is a racial condescension that was a product of the era of the Great Depression. It was a product of the era of the Jim Crow South, whereby even adult men named William were not referred to using the adult version of their name, but using the child's version of their name from their youth, using Willie instead of William. What I believe probably happened with Doris Miller is that that ethnocultural reality from the time period took over, and you'll see the contemporary written reports, they're referring to him as Dory. It could have been done for another, another number of reasons. I don't believe that was the case. I believe it was sort of an, an indication of the way that um, race was elaborated within the greater context of the United States in the 1930s and 40s. He's referred to as Dory in the movie. And if the movie was remade today, I don't think they would do that. Um, the, I didn't mean to get off on a tangent about that, but I, the bigger point that I was attempting to make there was that this is a movie that wouldn't get made today. And if it was made today, it would be very different. And it's even, it's strange now to look back 20 years on it and see the way that it had to be sort of a new superficialized and dumbed down version of events for a viewing audience that was being allowed to drift more and more away from the historical fact. And rather than just being a cranky old man that moans and complains about it, I should recognize that that's a process that I believe is probably inevitable. That with every historical event, there's going to be a point where the drift becomes very pronounced. And that's typically the point at which the veterans are gone. So that, like, I remember the bicentennial of the American Revolution. And when it happened, I was a kid and I was at school and I therefore got dragged along to go see a bunch of Revolutionary War battlefields. And I got to, there was like a, um, a lesson plan for, I was in fourth grade, maybe fifth grade at the time. There was a lesson plan for how you teach the revolution to young people. And I look back on that sort of critical moment in my youth where it was a public education to somebody who wasn't really a history fanatic yet. And the way that I interacted with the bicentennial at a point at which the subject was being privileged among other historical subjects by virtue of the fact that it was the bicentennial. And the version of the, the American Revolution that was served to me as a fourth grader in 1976 looks, I just led last year um, an American Revolutionary War tour. This is something that I also do. I did more of it during COVID because uh, I couldn't leave the country. Um, but the version of the American Revolution that was available to me as a four-year-old in 1976 is very, very different than the version of the American Revolution that I know now as someone who studied um, American history and studied specifically American military history. I understand that the, the point at which I entered that, that historical continuum as a fourth grader in 1976, the, the point at which I entered that part of the conversation was a point at 
all of the veterans were long gone and gone by more than a century. And that the way that it was taught to me necessarily meant that there had to, had to be a lot of exposition. There had to be a lot of a description of like, well, here's why the United States decided. Here's why Lexington and Concord had to happen. Here's the Tea Party. We have to, you have to understand the Tea Party and that this process of establishing context for people who have drifted, drifted away from a subject, that, that's inevitable. That's going to happen. It happens with this movie. And it's weird just to, for me to be old enough to have grown up very, very familiar with Torah, 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 and then... Pearl Harbor 2001 happened. It was, it's so weird to have that perspective because it felt very much like a comic book version of mm. December 7th that was being presented for people who didn't have a life like mine growing up interested in the subject because of a family member and because of the movie Tora 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 and because of, uh, I was born on a military post and I was raised in the, in, within the cultural context of the United States Army because my father was an army officer and I was around the military and I know that for a fact that the first time I saw Toro 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 was on December 7th, and I think it was in 1975, and it was at the Post Theater, because that's what you do on the anniversary, is you show uh, every year on December on June 6th, they would show The Longest Day. Every year on December 7th, they would show Toro Toro Toro. I'm not sure that Post Theaters today are showing Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor uh, every December 7th. I'm not convinced that that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I don't know. I've... I would guess not. <laughs> well, we talked about some of the um, the context from the the Japanese side, and in the movie, there is a discussion uh, between Admiral Kimmel and an analyst there, where um, from the American side, and the analyst suggests that there's no need to be concerned about an attack at Pearl. The water's too shallow for an aerial torpedo attack, and not only that, but it's surrounded by subnets. The only thing we really have to worry about here is sabotage, and don't worry, we've bunched the planes together to make them easier to protect. The movie explains that distance is an ally. And then, of course, the movie cuts to the Japanese saying, hey, we've accounted for the shallow harbor by attaching wooden fins to the torpedoes. Are those some of the reasons why the U.S. Navy didn't expect an attack at Pearl and then how the Japanese were able to plan for it anyway? Those were some of the reasons. And I'm glad you brought up the, the subject of the tail fins because that's something that I wanted to moan about. Um, and that's simply because of the fact that in the film, they – in this awkward outdoor setting, <laughs> they have three Type 91 torpedoes lined up on these rolling carts as a part of this outdoor briefing where, and Admiral, we have prepared these new, um, this new apparatus to mount on the back of our torpedoes. And they show the tail, the tail structure of Type 91 aerial torpedo. And then they show them snap the wooden fins yes, into just, place. Yep. They show it and it's saying, hey... It's, it's bouncing off of the fact that a moment before you heard Americans go, they can't do it here. This, the harbor is 40 feet deep. You can't use an aerial torpedo in a shallow harbor. And then you cut to the Japanese have come, come up with a way to overcome that challenge. Um, and the interesting thing to me is that then they have that exposition about the, break, the breakaway fence on the torpedo. And then um, when you get to the actual attack happening, there's, a per, there's like an, um, a perspective, a point of view perspective where – your position is you're behind the torpedo slung underneath the um, a B5N, not a B5N, yeah, yeah a B5N1, B5N2 Kate torpedo bomber. The torpedo is then released and your perspective is you follow it all the way down to the water. It splashes into the water and then with props turning, 
it zips off toward USS Oklahoma. And what it depicts is that wooden tail frame assembly in place. And when the torpedo splashes into the water, the wooden tail frame assembly remains in place on the torpedo all the way to the target. And when I see that, I'm like, you're defeating the point. You all, you actually know better. That was a breakaway retarding device that was de- that was intended so that as the weapon fell from beneath the aircraft and it fell down through the airflow, what they were attempt the Japanese were attempting to overcome was when the weapon struck the water because it was heavy. I mean, that's a 21-inch diameter torpedo that weighed over 3,000 pounds that had 200 miles an hour forward momentum. So there's a lot of kinetic energy that's associated with the moment with this, that the weapon enters the water. And what the wooden box frame on the tail assembly was intended to do was to prevent the torpedo from diving deep, then correcting itself. Because a problem that they were having was that when the d- torpedo was first developed, they were designed to be used against ships in the open sea, where you don't have to worry about how deep it dives um, in a torpedo attack. But when suddenly your target is in a harbor that's shallow, you do have to concern yourself with how deep the weapon dives before it corrects itself because it would dive deep and then correct itself so it's running just a few feet below the surface of the water. There were times that depending on a combination of factors, depending on the altitude of the aircraft, the forward airspeed of the aircraft, and the water conditions, you could get um, when the torpedo entered the water, the, the torpedo might dive 30 feet and then correct itself, but it might dive 100 feet before wow. it's able to overcome the momentum of entering the water and then moving back up to the gyroscopically stabilized firing solution that will take it to its target. And so the Japanese conducted extensive experimentation with a breakaway tail fin assembly that they found provided enough reliability to get them through that attack. And just for the record, that system, its success rate on December 7th is around 50%. Oh. So it was sort of successful, but not overwhelmingly successful. There are, in fact, there's one of the greatest artifacts on display when you visit the visitor center before you go out to the USS Arizona Memorial. There's a museum exhibit that's a part of the visitor center. And they display a Type 91 aerial torpedo that had um, apparently been directed against USS California. Um, But when it hit the water, it dove too deep. I believe that what was happening was that the the way that the, the wooden tail frame assembly was mounted to the back of the weapon is it wasn't mounted hard enough. So it broke away too easily. And therefore, the tail assembly didn't provide enough resistance right at the critical moment as the torpedo slipping into the water. And the result was the tail assembly broke away, but the torpedo dove too deep. It went underneath the ship entirely and then went and embedded itself in this mud bank on Fort Island. And there it sat until 1992 when there was an attempt to do some dredging um, dredging, and a dredging um, like bucket loader dropped down and pulled up a live Type 91 torpedo. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh is right because that's over 700 pounds of Torpex and Torpex yeah. remains just as dangerous 70, uh, 60 years later as it is on the day that it's released. So what they're depicting in the movie, um, I wanted to sort of pull this example apart, which is why I'm so glad you asked the question about the tail fin assembly thing, because what it's revealing to you is that within the filmmaking universe for this movie, there were silos where there were, they had military advisors that worked on this film. I was not one of them, but I know several of the people that worked on this film and they're smart people. They're smart people that would have, that would have, and did advise these filmmakers against these terrible historical inaccuracies. Um, But the filmmaker would do what all filmmakers eventually do. And that is like, we got to make a movie. We got a movie. We got to get it done. 
We have a deadline. There are literally millions of dollars on the line. I think the budget on this film was $140 million. That's, that's an enormous amount of money. And I can imagine the pressure that the filmmaker must endure to get that, to, to give birth to that. And that doesn't make me feel better about the fact that the film has, this movie remains noteworthy only for how bad it was and how much contempt that it showed toward historical accuracy. Um, so you had silos within the filmmaking to where there's a piece of exposition in the movie where they are explaining the breakaway tail fin assembly that makes it possible to use torpedoes in a shallow harbor. And then when it went to the animator who digitally animated the torpedo, that animator didn't know, oh, you mean that wooden part breaks away? Oh, he didn't know. I'm sure whoever did that sometime shortly after the movie released and everyone began howling endlessly, that poor guy would probably... Poor girl, that poor person was probably like, I mean, I just, I didn't know. I didn't know because the way that these, these experts, these very, very skilled people move from one project to the next is that they'll get a project. They'll work on it for maybe a year, maybe less than a year. They'll get the project. That doesn't mean that they're immediately going to consume every book that has ever been written on this subject. And what I am finding, the way that this is elaborated here within the contemporary era, is that that doesn't even mean that these highly skilled technicians are even going to look at the Wikipedia page. What they're probably going to just do is go forward with whatever requires the least amount of effort. And so that's why we have the awkwardness of this movie, which in this one detail tried to do the right thing by explaining the way that the Japanese sort of ingeniously came up with a method for overcoming the deep dive, the, the depth of dive on the torpedoes. And that's explained in one scene. And then 30 minutes, 40 minutes later in the film, it's the, the, the meaning and the point is completely lost by the way that it was animated by somebody on a, somebody that was sitting in a studio, not somebody that was in, d involved in principled photography, but somebody in the edit that was doing digital animations. The reality here is very fascinating because the Japanese did come up with a method that was sort of successful. It sort of failed a little bit too. And that's, there were so many variables associated with of achieving a successful torpedo attack in the shallow harbor with the Type 91 aerial torpedo, because what it did was it required the aircrafts carrying the torpedo to get to the lowest possible altitude. Because when you, when you compress the altitude, the weapon is falling a shorter distance. Therefore, the weapon is generating less centrifugal forces. It's uh, not centrifugal force, but it's, de it's developing less speed. It has less time to develop speed on its way to the water. And that meant that the crew, the air crews knew we have to get really low because we're delivering this sort of delicate package. Um, when it hits the water, the tail fin assembly, hopefully it would Hopefully the weapon would hit the water at a correct low altitude at a correct speed because it also required that the aircraft had to slow down. The faster you're going, even if you're at the correct optimal altitude and it's low, if you're going too fast, the weapon's going to be carrying even more momentum when it hits the water. Right. And that means it's going to dive deeper. And so the result is that the Japanese delicately had to balance these factors. And I know that this must be miserable for you to sit through it right now, but there's light at the end of the tunnel because there's a point to be made about this very subject that says something spectacular about what happened on Sunday, December 7th, 1941. And that is that the Japanese had this very well laid out plan and the whole thing went to hell the second it started. The Japanese plan, as time has gone by, we have tended to recognize the Japanese came up with this ingenious plan and carried out a successful attack. And it was an ingenious attack was an ingenious plan and it was so poorly executed that they made an absolute mess of it the oh. successes that they did achieve and that in terms of 
um, sinking, damaging ships and killing people. Those um, successes, everything occurs within the first 15 minutes. After the first 15 minutes, the Japanese are, they're getting very, very little return for their investment um, until the point where they finally disengage and the aircraft fly back to the fleet and the fleet makes a run for it. But during this first 15 minutes, which is when you have, I think it's 48 aircraft carrying Type 91 aerial torpedoes, about half of them work. The ones that connect, my God, they put on a show because look what happened to USS Oklahoma. You look what happened to USS uh, California. They, they connect um, and enough of them connect for it to make sense. But an important point that I want to make here is that the reason that there is such a high failure rate is because as the Japanese, um, as uh, what is it, 183 aircraft on the first wave, as they intrude into the airspace to attack the primary target, they were attacking all these other military targets on Oahu, but the primary target was, let's face it, it was Pearl Harbor, Navy base Pearl Harbor. And as they piled in to attack the Navy base, they experienced massive problems with what the military today, air power today calls deconfliction, meaning that they had very carefully laid out that the torpedo aircraft will circle all the way around the western side or the leeward side of the island. They'll come back around Barber's Point. They'll come back partly over the far western outskirts of Honolulu itself as they then get into position to approach Fort Island to attack the battleships. Um, and then dive bombers will cut across the mountain range here to attack Wheeler and Airfield. And this will all be done in such a coordinated way as everything happens all over the island all at once. What the Japanese ended up doing, though, was making a big mess of all of that. And it was to the point that there were aircraft, there were torpedo bombing aircraft, in other words, B-5N2 Kate torpedo bombers that were lined up to attack. That would be the west side of Ford Island where USS Utah was and USS Raleigh were. And those aircraft um, were looking for aircraft carriers. They saw USS Utah, which was at the time a target ship, and it had big wooden planks laid out on its deck, and some aircraft mistook it uh, for being an aircraft carrier. And they attacked it. Some other aircraft at the last minute went, wait a minute, that's not an aircraft carrier. And so the pilots cheated around to the south going, I mean, I brought this torpedo a long way from Japan, and I'm supposed to throw this thing at an aircraft carrier. And so their instinct was like, all right, not here. That's, that's not an aircraft carrier. I'm supposed to hit aircraft carriers. They flew south around the southern end of Fort Island, and then they were going to come back up to the other side of the island, which would be the eastern side where Battleship Row was, looking for aircraft carriers. And the result was that you had aircraft that had flown all the way around Barber's Point. They were in position to release against uh, – so I'm going to do it like this. They were in position to release against Battleship Row. And right at the point when they were lowering their altitude, pulling back on the throttle to, to bleed off a little bit of forward airspeed, getting into the position to drop the torpedo so that the torpedo had the greatest possible chance of connecting with its target. Right at that moment, suddenly friendly aircraft flew straight in front of them right across their flight path. And it was because of this mix-up. And it caused a few pilots to go, oh, well, crap, now I can't do it. They've totally, totally spoiled my lineup. It caused aircraft to disengage. Another factor that comes up, too, is that there was a, a plan that within each Kokutai or within each group of torpedo bombers, as they moved into the position right before they attacked Battleship Row, they had flown 200 and something miles from the aircraft carriers. 
they had flown in a formation that made sense for the altitude that they were flying. And then they moved out of that formation into a formation that made more sense for the attack that they were about to conduct. And so there were aircraft that they had choices to make as they changed that formation from basically the transit formation to the battle formation. And the decisions that they had to make was they had two possible attack formations. And one was where every aircraft was lined up behind the other way. Every single aircraft was, it was a line of aircraft. The other formation would have been one where instead of being lined up one after the other, they lined up wingtip to wingtip. And it was understood that they would, depending on the circumstances, the flight lead could make a decision, um, depending on what he was seeing there at the target, he would make a decision to break the transit formation and go to either inline or wingtip to wingtip. And one thing that they were experiencing was that for aircraft ahead of them, they were seeing they had to fly over the Navy base and they're flying over big buildings on the Navy base right at the moment before they begin releasing torpedoes against Battleship Row. And they were seeing aircraft in front of them that were being buffeted upward by this upgassing of warm air because these big Navy buildings, they absorb the sunshine, they heat up, and they create convection directly above them. They create a, an area of warmed air just directly above them, and an aircraft will experience some turbulence as it passes through that. And so there were pilots that were realizing that the aircraft in front of them were being buffeted a little bit, Right at the moment when you're trying to get low, trying to slow your airspeed down and get as level as possible to give your torpedo the best possible chance of success. They were seeing that and the pilot, the, the, lead, the lead pilot in at least two formations I'm aware of, realized that that was happening. And instead of directing his men to break transit formation into wingtip to wingtip formation, he kept them in line because he thought, well, if we stay in line, then we'll have a more direct assault. And we will be less affected by this buffeting of this warm air. Maybe the turbulence down. being wingtip to wingtip, what they he thought maybe would affect more. Yeah, it, there was a thought that the, the the there was also a recognition that it wasn't like one just big general area of disturbed yeah. air. It was over the buildings, and there was a real realization that well, if we break up into wingtip to wingtip formation, some of my planes are going to be passing over buildings and getting bumped around a little bit by warm air. And my others aren't, and it looks like that might not be the best possible way for me to deliver this attack. And so they remained in line, and there was one group of them that as they were in the inline formation and up at the sub base, which is, um, would have been off to the right of these aircraft on the, to, to the north of Battleship Row, uh, there was a better, better part of torpedo, uh, Patrol Torpedo Squadron 1, which was a PT boat squadron that was embarked aboard transport ships to be taken to Midway. Because the PT boats had been loaded onto PT tenders, they had their guns on them, they had their ammo on them, and the crews were there. And so there were um, men in Patrol Torpedo Squadron 1, and keep in mind these are PT boats, they're called a squadron though, that they immediately manned their guns, and the forwardmost gun tub on a PT boat was, um, the, what is it, the Mark 12, no, it's the Mark 18 Mod 2 um, twin 50 caliber machine gun mount which is a, a swiveling mount where you have a skate ring mount where the weapons can traverse um, through traverse and they can elevate. And they were, the mount was equipped with two A&M 250 caliber machine guns, which are extraordinarily effective weapons against aircraft at low altitude, at low speed. And the result was this one section that remained in line formation, a gunner that shot several of them down. 
He said, I didn't even have to traverse my guns. They just flew right into my field of fire one after the other. We tend to emphasize how brilliant the Japanese plan was and how well carried out it was. And it really wasn't that well carried out. The Japanese were quite lucky. A lot of things went very badly wrong. And when I say lucky, they were, think about what the big successes are. Loss of Arizona is the worst thing that we go through that day. Loss of Oklahoma is pretty damn bad too. There are aerial attacks at Hickam Army Airfield that are extremely costly. We lose 89 people at Hickam. Um, it's at the Navy base where the, the, the loss of life is the highest. And all of these things that I am indicating as being the greatest successes the Japanese experienced that day, they all happened within the first 15 minutes. And during that 15 minutes, the, United, the, the Americans on the ground are beginning to react. I find that overwhelmingly the way that people think of the raid today, because they're told to by movies like this one, they're told to imagine Americans who were soundly asleep and not paying attention, mm -hmm. Americans who were disconnected and enjoying the high life. And that is not what happened. Americans, although they weren't fully braced for an attack first thing in the morning on a Sunday, we, were, we had just come out from under a general alert in the Hawaiian Islands. Like there's even a point where, like one of the, one of the actors that charms me, even though I don't want to be charmed in this movie, I don't want to like this movie at all, but for God's sakes, I mean, I'm a human being and you, you look at Kate Beckinsale and you're like, yes, I believe anything you tell me. And I actually think she's pretty good in this movie. And I think that Alec Baldwin is pretty good in this movie. No, he's not Jimmy Doolittle, but I think he's actually one of the good, um, one of the good actors in this film. That's a, a movie that's really dominated by a lot of really bad acting and a, a lot of bad acting from good actors. Like I think Cuba Gooding, Gooding Jr.'s role in this movie is very badly acted and it is not his fault. That man is one of the, our greatest living actors. He's a magnificent actor. But look who was directing him and look at what he was doing. It's Cuba Gooding Jr. Like who was, I think, coaxed into giving this sort of over the top, very Broadway, over-exaggerated, uh, servile 1930s African-American performance. And then a lot of him hammering away with a twin 50 caliber machine gun and screaming like, ah, the old cliche of action movies. Um, but one of the actors who I think is actually quite good, and this is Dan Aykroyd. And Dan Aykroyd is not playing an actual character, but rather playing a conglomerate. He's playing a group. He's playing a character that's based on several different characters that's assessing and evaluating intelligence before the attack. And there's a point where the movie spends some time developing this idea that the Japanese fleet has disappeared. The nobody knows where the combined fleet is. And that's rolled out in dialogue in the film. And... I love to add that in because, like I've told you, I lead tours. I've led three tours um, of Pearl Harbor this year. I'm leading two in the next couple of months. Oh, you should feel so terrible for me. I have to go back to Hawaii and talk about World War II. It's awful what I go through. Um, but when, I, when, when this comes up, I love to point out that all military forces on Oahu had gone under a full alert on November 20th. That full alert lasted until December 4th. And part of the reason why this... Um, exaggeration of this misrepresentation of Americans who are off, like, you know, they, Alec Baldwin's Jimmy Doolittle has a moment of line about our two fighter pilot main protagonist characters being in Hawaiian shirts when they flew their mission. It, the, all the, the idea that Americans just weren't ready. Part of the reason that you do see that is, and, and part of the reason that for many of these warships, commanding officers and also senior leadership on board the ship is not on the ship. The sh they're ashore at the time of the attack. And that's because when we went to full alert on November 20th, everybody was on their station 
24 hours a day until we relaxed from full alert, which we did on December 4th. So that literally the night of Saturday, December 6th, 1941, that was the first Saturday night that anybody had had in weeks to go do something fun, to get off post or to get off the ship, to go do something enjoyable, like go play a card game that the actual two fighter pilots that the two protagonist characters in this movie are based on Taylor and Welch, the two of them had been cooped up at this temporary airfield that was a remote airfield on the North Shore during the entire general alert. And they're finally allowed to go back to Wheeler Army Airfield to the BOQ. They're allowed, hey, you got Saturday night off. And it's unsurprising that they were like, well, we're going to go down to, we're going to go down to Waikiki. We're going to go to the Royal Hawaii. We're going to get, we're going to put on our dress uniforms. We're going to have a night on the town because we haven't been able to enjoy that for a long time now. And that general alert was entirely created by the fact that the Japanese combined fleet disappeared. So you can say that, yeah, the Americans were, everybody was out partying and these officers weren't on board these ships. And yes, we had relaxed, but that's not a, an actual, it's not an accurate picture of what was actually happening. And the actual picture is one in which we are paying a little bit closer attention and we are sensitively watching the developing situation. But when it comes up, what people tend to point to is how um, we were surprised. There was no big surprise. We knew when the, when the combined fleet disappeared in November. We knew that it was out there. We knew that it was probably going to do something. We knew that the ambassador and the special assistant that was assigned to him, Caruso and Nomura, we knew that something was up with them, that intelligence was pouring in, that, that coded messages were pouring in to the Japanese embassy in Washington, D.C. We knew that something was about to go down. We just looked farther toward the resource zone. A lot of very smart people looked at the situation and thought, probably going to be an attack on the Philippines, or it might be if the Japanese really get outrageous about it, it might be Guam. If you could indicate any shortcoming on our part, it would be the shortcoming of us not imagining something as possible, and that something is something that had never happened in human history. Um, just for the record, the Japanese, of course, of the flotilla that carries out the December 7th attack is based on six aircraft carriers, and they maneuvered as one battle element and one formation. They crossed the North Pacific under um, total radio silence and carried out their attack. And at no time since then have six aircraft carriers maneuvered as a part of one maneuvering body on the surface of the ocean. Wow. So that in the entirety of the, what happens after Pearl Harbor in World War II, there are task groups that are smaller in size than six carriers in one unit. Um, and everything that happens in the decades after the Second World War, there's no point where anyone maneuvers six aircraft carriers in one unit, total radio silence, secret mission, crossing the breadth of the Pacific Ocean. That had never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. Wow. And so it's, I think, therefore, easy to understand why it was that people didn't imagine that as a possibility. Right. They had no reason to imagine that the Japanese would do that. If it was me, if I was alive, then I would think, yeah, they're going to hit the Philippines, which, of course, they did on December 7th. I mean, it was, there's an international dateline between Hawaii and the Philippines. So when, when you read written accounts, it will say that they attacked um, in the afternoon on December 8th. Well, that's it's almost right. simultaneous. Um, that then there were there were attacks on Guam uh, that were almost simultaneous, and that was in addition to all these other attacks. What if there was one failure? It was the failure to to think big, to think that what if the Japanese and we were we were pretty well aware of the fact that they're probably going to hit the Philippines. They might hit Guam. The one thing that nobody apparently stopped to think about was like, what if they hit everything yeah. all at once? Yeah. What if they hit almost 
almost every single one of our island outposts in the Pacific all at one time. We didn't imagine that being possible because that had never been done before. And there was also some confidence over things like the harbor's too shallow. There was some confidence over things like, oh, they'll never come this far across the Pacific to hit Hawaii. Hawaii's too far away. And in many respects, Hawaii was sort of far away. I'm not saying that, I'm not using this as a means of excusing um, the fact that they did get in a pretty powerful blow against us. But I also like to point out that the attack, although it produced, I mean, it killed 2,403 people. It sank or destroyed 21 warships. It was resulted in the destruction of 188 aircraft. It was, this is nothing to sneeze at. This is a very serious attack. However, one thing I have heard over and over again repeated, especially in the years since this movie came out, is that the Japanese destroyed the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. They did not do that. The Pacific fleet lost um, permanently how many ships? Three. Hmm. Utah, Arizona, Oklahoma. USS Nevada is badly damaged in this t- this attack. And what happens eventually with that ship? Nevada's throwing shells ashore on D-Day. Um, they didn't sink everything. I find that there is a tendency from, for people to emphasize histrionic beliefs about the December 7th attack. They didn't destroy everything. And in fact, in recent years, since the movie came out, one thing that I have something that comes up all the time that I have to sort of provide an answer for. And that is like, well, the Japanese were foolish because they didn't attack the fuel farm. And my argument to that is like, they only had 352 single engine aircraft and they had to run as fast as they could to get the hell away from Hawaii because on Hawaii, there were a lot more angry aircraft and ships than they had. And so they had to get in, get it done and get out as fast as they possibly could. And you can't hit everything with 352 single-engine aircraft. You have to pick your targets carefully. Mm -hmm. And they made the right decisions, I think, in terms of picking their targets carefully. And that was number number one aircraft carriers. And in their absence, number two, battleships. And then maybe some shore side facilities. Another thing that really gets under my skin is people will frequently say, well, the Japanese didn't attack their repair facilities. Nonsense. The Japanese attacked several repair facilities. There's the famous photograph that depicts the destroyer USS Shaw exploding, and USS Shaw was in a floating dry dock that <laughs> came under Japanese attack. The re- there are famous photographs that show USS Pennsylvania, USS Casson, and USS Downs in a flooded dry dock area, and the area um, was flooded because the Japanese kept dropping bombs on those ships in the dry dock and they finally flooded it to contain the fires on those ships. The Japanese did carry out shoreside attacks on repair facilities. They didn't go after the fuel farm and that's because I think they had too many other, they had a target-rich environment that they were trying to deal with. And that target-rich environment was Pearl Harbor and there were lots of ships there and nearby Hickam Army Airfield with lots of airplanes. And so they went after those targets. Of all the targets, those are the ones you're going to go to first. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Dan Aykroyd's character because the movie does mention, I mean, fictional character, Captain Thurman in, in the film, but um, he does throw out something about how uh, the fleet's probably headed towards Philippines or Southeast Asia. I think Nimitz says something like, show me some evidence. And he's like, well, it's what I would do. <laughs> you know, yeah. He kind of gives that oversimplified line. But it's interesting that the filmmakers did at least uh, throw a nod to that, at least that that was a possibility that they were thinking about that there was an attack that's probably coming, but just really not thinking that it's probably Pearl. 
Right. And that was what I thought was interesting about that specific exchange in the film was the fact that he is engaging with the Nimitz character and the Nimitz character is like, show me proof of this. When all along, strangely, Nimitz was someone who felt genuine concern about the Anchorage at Pearl Harbor. Oh, really? So he was concerned about it the whole time. Yeah. And there was, I, I don't find what, what I have found overwhelmingly in the years since this movie came out is that people have this tendency to imagine, which I think is really more of, it's more of an indication of the era, the, the postmodern cynicism of this era. And that is that people tend to think that any general is corrupt and incompetent or any admiral is corrupt or incompetent, that that there is this old trope from World War One history, from Civil War history of that the leaders are the one that by not being down there in the trenches or not being close to the battle, they have lost touch with and that they needlessly and wantonly sacrifice the lives of people below them. And um, what I have overwhelmingly found in studying this subject for most of my adult life is that. Uh, that is not what happened, that it was a series of leaders that were engaging in, in, in sober conversations about what the Japanese might do, that it was not a, a quality of being disconnected and unconcerned and dismissive. I have even heard the rolling out of a racialized narrative where people will frequently say that Americans never expected this because they never expected that Asian people could do something like this. And that's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. We had every reason to believe that the Japanese were capable of almost anything. There was no reason for us to be dismissive of Japanese military capabilities. And nobody wrote or published thought toward that end. So none of these high-ranking officers were on record saying something uh, dismissive about Asian people and what they were either capable or incapable of. What they thought instead was that we had to, if there's anything in the movie that I feel like a line that I do sort of appreciate a lot, uh, it comes from John Voight playing FDR, who I think is great in this movie. I think he plays probably the best FDR that's ever been played. Hmm. I think he's quite good. I know he's bonkers and crazy now, but I, he, John Voight was good in this movie. I really feel like that. And there's a point where they're discussing war production in a cabinet meeting that definitely would have not discuss war production, but they're still doing it. <laughs> and um, in it, he says, we need to transfer more to Europe. And they show an officer, maybe even the Nimitz character, not the Nimitz character, maybe the um, Kimmel character says, so we're going to keep stripping things from the Pacific to help the, to help Europe. And John Voight's FDR replies with, what else can we do? And to me, that encapsulates a point very effectively. And that is that the United States was sort of thrust into a what else can we do position. We did not have infinite military capability. We had limit. We had finite strength at the time. While the administration was desperately doing everything that it possibly could to increase the production of, of weapons and ammunition, the things that we ultimately knew we would need when we joined the fighting world. And so to me, I feel like the quote says something that needed to be said in this train wreck of a movie. And that is that the United States was facing this constantly evolving daily news continuum during which no decision is the right decision. Every decision is wrong. You're not going to win. What do you do? That was sort of the position that the administration was in. And the administration, therefore, it's, it's therefore unsurprising that our military, which could not be omnipresent, our military, which had finite strength. I often use an example to illustrate this in the form of patrol aircraft. 
A critically important element of this story is that the Hawaiian Islands had to be protected. And the best way to protect the enemy from sneaking up on them was to conduct daily long-range maritime surveillance flight operations through the use of aircraft like the PPY Catalina. Um, The aircraft could fly out 500, maybe even more miles, conduct a search grid, and return to Hawaii. Um, When Kimmel takes over as the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, which is in February of 1941, one of the first things he requests is more patrol squadrons. And as a part of that request, he illustrates the point in, I think, an extraordinarily powerful way by saying, the assets that I now have available on this island in terms of long-range maritime surveillance patrol aircraft allow me to cover 25 degrees of the 360 degrees that surround this island. Wow. And in doing that, he really, I believe, brought the appropriate emphasis to the fact that you're setting me up to fail, which is precisely what they were doing. They set that man up to fail. Over the issue of patrol aircraft, the compromise measure that was then made was they couldn't give him all the PBYs that he asked for because they hadn't been made yet. And we were beginning this process of expanding PBY production because it was recognized that that aircraft is so very, very valuable which is why ultimately production of the PBY was established 20 miles that way in the city of New Orleans, Louisiana, because we just couldn't make enough of the damn things. We had to have somebody else open up a facility where we were were producing the aircraft. The compromise measure that was made was that they gave him additional PBY patrol squadron assets. And in addition to that, they had just developed this new thing at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, which is called the SCR-277, which is radar. And the thought then became, all right, we have, I have this many patrol squadrons and I have these mobile SCR-277A, or was it B? It was B because the mobile unit was designated SCR-277B. Um, but there was a recognition for the fact that we, um, um, I'm sorry, I said 277, it was 270. SCR-270A and B, I think A is permanent and B is mobile. Um, anyway, so there's this great memorial to this and it's at Turtle Bay where they filmed Sarah Marshall <laughs> and the, the funny thing that I end up doing with my tours is that we go there because um, I can show them this memorial and then I will typically like all of the Hawaiian air flights that are going there forgetting Sarah Marshall is all is available to watch as one of the movies because it's all about Hawaii it's about yeah. life in Hawaii and all these funny things, and it's filmed at Turtle Bay and so it turns into, it's partly like talking about radar in December 7th and then Partly like they filmed this scene here. And when Kristen Wiig is doing the scene where she's teaching the yoga class, it was in this building. It turns into a combination of those two things. But the SCR-270 radar, the reason I mentioned it is that it was part of this compromise measure that they had with Kimmel, where Kimmel asked for more patrol squadron assets. They gave him what they could, but they then think also, it's a big Pacific Ocean and we need uh, Catalinas on Guam. We need Catalinas in the Philippine Islands. We need Catalinas at place like Palmyra and Midway and Johnston and all of these other remote island outposts that we were worried the Japanese were going to occupy. Anyway, as a part of the compromise, they said, we, can give you, we can't give you everything you wanted, but we can give you this and we can give you these radar sets, these U.S. Army SCR-270s, and you can put those in a place that will help you. And that will, the way that that will help you is that you can, by day, you're running your long-range maritime surveillance flights using the Catalinas. And then at night, when the Catalinas can't do anything anymore because they can't see in the dark, turn on the SCR-270. And so the result was then that part of what Kimmel had decided was, okay, great. I have had this asset made available to me. I can't search 360 degrees. I can only search a sliver. What sliver makes the most sense? 
there was a general thought that if the Japanese conducted an attack against Oahu, it would come from the south. Well, it came from the north. And that's not to say that Kimmel, Kimmel was a fool because Kimmel, he thought, if they're going to attack, it's going to come from the south. So there were more assets on the south shore than on the north shore. But then he realized, like, I, I can't leave my, my back door unguarded. I, I can't let them sneak up on me from the south. And so what Kimmel ended up doing was what? He put the SCR-270 at Opana Point on the North Shore because he then had, he could then think, all right, well, that's covered by radar. So if somebody tries sneaking up on the islands at night, it'll be picked up on radar. And meanwhile, I'm going to focus on the South because I think that's where they're going to come from if they show up here. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, in the movie, it does show the radar. It, in the morning of December 7th, uh, there, we see a radar outpost and the movie describes it as a, a large haze. It's the radar operator. It's told, relax, it's just a flight of B-17s from the mainland. And then uh, another event happens in the movie. It gets mentioned when at uh, 7.20 a.m., Admiral Kimmel gets a report that he's playing golf, and he gets a report that an American destroyer reported having fired on and sunk an enemy submarine attempting to enter Pearl Harbor. That The report was 7.20, but the movie mentions that that had happened at 6.53 a.m. Was there really a, a Japanese that was sunk and then this haze that showed up on the radar then was misidentified as B-17s just before the attack began? Yes, these things actually happened. Um, if I could provide a little more context for them, for I sure. think it yeah, would definitely. more understandable. And that's because, uh, first of all, I'll address the midget submarine thing. So as a part of this operation, the Japanese Imperial Navy also deployed five midget submarines to participate in the attack. The way that they were supposed to participate was that uh, these midget submarines, each one of them, there were 49-ton vessels that were powered by batteries. They had a crew of two sailors, and each one of them was carried piggyback style on the back of a long-range Japanese I-boat, a full-size Japanese submarine. Okay. When they maneuvered into position, they would surface. The two sailors that would man this, the midget submarine would come out of the main submarine, climb aboard the midget submarine, seal the hatches, deck crew would then unleash the lashing that held the midget submarine to the deck of the larger submarine. The larger submarine would then dive away. The midget submarine, now free of the larger submarine, could then move on and carry out an attack on its own. What was supposed to happen was that all five of them during the pre-dawn hours were supposed to penetrate Pearl Harbor. And once they were inside the harbor, they were to maneuver into and position themselves in the open body of water between Ford Island and the Navy base. In other words, the body of water um, against which Battleship Row was situated. Um, the plan was that they won, once they were once they had penetrated the Navy base and got into position, they would sink down to the bottom and rest on the bottom of Pearl Harbor until such time as they heard the attack begin. They'd hear it. I mean, they'd hear massive explosions going off above them, at which point they would blow some ballast. They would they would ascend through the water column and they would release torpedoes against the ships that were lined up there. The reason that they were being used is there was a concern that the Japanese Type 91 aerial torpedo, that's the torpedo we've spoken about thus far, which is the type of torpedo that was being carried by B-5N2K torpedo bombers during the attack. The aerial torpedo was um, a less powerful weapon than the Type 93 torpedo, which was designed to be used by ships and submarines. The Type 93 torpedo was a significantly more powerful weapon. The Type 91 aerial torpedo of the type that was released by the aircraft had an overall TNT charge. I've, uh, I believe that it's a, in the weight range of 400 pounds of high explosive. That's nothing to laugh at. Yeah. That's Jeez. a lot. But the Type 93 torpedo 
as carried by two each, carried by the midget submarines. So five midget submarines, each one carrying two Type 93s. That makes for 10 Type 93 torpedoes. Those weapons carried over 700 pounds of high explosive. Wow. That's a ship killer. Yeah. And the thought was that the combination of, and, and partly this was them, the Japanese, hedging their bets because the Japanese were not 100% convinced that all of the Type 91s would work. Because again, there's the issue of the, the shallow harbor. Mm-hmm. Even though the breakaway fins worked, these people weren't stupid. They understood very clearly that, yeah, when we get to when we get down to the lowest possible altitude, 50 feet, and we slow down to this speed and we release the breakaway wood fin assembly, it retards the dive and the torpedo doesn't dive but about 15, maybe 20 feet. And you know that there were naysayers there but like, yeah, but what's going to happen when we're getting shot at? And they realized that, well, if we're getting shot at, you might have aviators that, that don't get to 50 feet and slow down. And they release and those, so those torpedoes might not work. And so the thought was then that, okay, well, we'll hedge our bets. We will also employ uh, these midget submarines carrying the more powerful Type 93 torpedo. The midget submarines were, as I said before, all supposed to penetrate the harbor and then sink down to the bottom and wait for the attack to begin. What we now know is that out of the five, um, the one that was spotted shortly before 7 a.m. on December 7th was then ultimately attacked by the destroyer USS Ward, which was a World War I-era four-stacker destroyer. And that Ward fired on it with several of the weapons on board the ship, but that it's three-inch 50 gun scored two hits on this midget submarine that was attempting to penetrate the harbor by sailing in behind another ship that was going in. And that when the three-inch rounds hit that midget submarine, it killed the two men aboard and caused the midget submarine to sink. That midget submarine was found, and I'll never forget it. It was found, I believe it was August of 2001, I think is when it was discovered. It was discovered in 1,400 feet of water just off the harbor entrance. And that that conclusively proves that the first shots fired on December 7th were fired by the United States Navy at the Japanese. So the first shots of the Pacific War were not the Japanese attacking us, but us attacking them. That was known. There was a delay in getting that information into the right hands. An argument that I make about that is I think we're making a lot about something that we shouldn't be making a lot about when we harp on the fact that the message didn't get to Kimmel quickly enough. And my thought was, okay, let's say it got to him immediately. What could have been done and what would have been done? The islands had been under a full alert for a couple of weeks. They had only just come down off of the full alert. Going back to full alert on the basis of one report was it would have been irresponsible for the for an officer to do that. And just for the record, it wasn't like nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. And then Kimmel, Kimmel was told, we shot at a midget submarine off, off the harbor entrance this morning. There had been other reports that turned out to be false. Oh, okay. Other reports had been made. Just for the record, there were uh, over and over again, there were reports of Japanese paratroopers up on the North Shore. There were reports of a Japanese trawler here or a Japanese trawler there or Japanese ships were spotted in this area. This is the sort of thing that happens that's, I think we always just sort of slough it off to fog of war. We recognize that part of what determines success or failure in combat is not so much um, skill and knowledge, but sometimes luck is a factor. And it is often a process of you're bombarded by a lot of false information and a little bit of true information. And you have to be smart enough to figure out what's false and what's true very quickly. And that asks a lot of leadership. Um, The result was that the message was slightly delayed. The message, by the time that it got to him, 
there was an insufficient amount of time for a dramatic, full alert type of reaction that would have reduced the losses that we had. One big thing that people criticize quite frequently is the fact that there were anti-torpedo nets available and that they were not used to protect the fleet at Battleship Row. And there's a reason for it. It's not a great decision. He, that's not one of the, that's a hard call. I'm glad I didn't have to make it. Um, and the decision that he made was, we're not going to use them. And the reason that he made that decision was, he was more concerned that his advanced early warning system of PBY Catalinas would spot a Japanese task force when it was 200 miles away. And he would catch them before they launched their aircraft and that he would then get the full, the fleet up to full steam and get everybody out of the harbor as fast as possible. And if you had torpedo nets around your ships, it took hours to dismantle them. Mm. And so imagine, I mean, what would you do? What would you do if you're like, well, sir, we can put these torpedo nets up and they'll protect the ship in the unlikely event that the Japanese attempt to conduct a torpedo attack in a shallow harbor and torpedoes just don't work in these shallow harbors. Um, we can either put up these torpedo nets for this unlikely possibility, or we can not use them and give the fleet the ability to get out of the harbor much quicker. And the decision he made was obviously he didn't use the torpedo nets. And it was because he favored or he privileged this idea of getting everybody up to steam and out of the harbor quickly. And if I was in his position, I'm not sure I would have made a different decision than he did. I mean, we know from hindsight that it was not the correct decision, but at the time, you don't have the luxury of hindsight, obviously. And so, you know, it's easy to, to, to cast that sort of judgment on, on decisions like that, that I'm sure there are a lot of other decisions that played well, or some did not, some do, some don't. And that's, I, I don't want to make those decisions that go back to that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And if, if anything, there was um, a positive that comes out of this is that there was a joint, um, a joint structure that was ultimately created by which all of the branches of the military had to come together. We would eventually refer to it as the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and it provided greater levels of cooperation and communication between the branch service branches. And we we weren't there yet. But also keep in mind, I, I like to keep in mind, is that how long had the Pacific Fleet been in Pearl Harbor at this point? A little over a year? Resources were finite. We were doing everything that we possibly could. Kimmel had been placed in command and immediately, quickly assessed, we're going to need more, we're going to need this, we're going to need that. He was, he didn't have everything that he wanted because he just couldn't have everything that he wanted. And also there was a war going on in Europe and that's distracting, that's distracting resources away from you. Uh, he, he took sort of a bad rap, I think, in history uh, as time goes by. Yeah, there are a couple of decisions that can be easily criticized, but um, I think it's a failure, an intellectual failure, not to recognize that this was a man who was up against a series of circumstances where he couldn't possibly win. And we were against an enemy who was extremely good. One thing that I have, I have, I get a, like a case of indigestion about is that people very frequently love to call attention to American military failures before December 7th. When what I like to point out is like, yeah, you can either do that or you can say the Japanese had the greatest fleet air arm in the world at the time. They had the best fighter. They had the best torpedo plane. They had really good torpedoes. They had really good aircraft carriers and they had great command leadership that could come up with bold plans and carry them out effectively. Um, so which is it? Was it an inept and corrupted American system that was asleep at the wheel and not paying attention? Or was it a, an extremely efficient, efficient and effective Japanese military mm. force? Um, because I don't think you can have both. I think those two things live in different zip codes and you have to kind of have one or the other. And I tend to favor the fact that the Japanese were extremely bold. They were extremely good. And I 
leveraged my belief in all of that with the fact that there were a lot of problems associated with the way they carried out this attack. And I think one of the most important things to remember is that Pearl Harbor itself was not supposed to be the target that they attacked because the fleet could be at either one of two places. The fleet was either at Pearl Harbor or it was at Lahaina Roads. And if you look at a map of the Hawaiian Islands, you'll see that on the western shore of Maui, there's a town called Lahaina. And there is a protected body of water that's called Lahaina Roads. That's between it and Molokai and um, one of the other islands. Um, Lahaina Roads is deep and broad, and it's an extraordinarily well-protected bay. That was the location where the it was preferred to keep the fleet at Lahaina Roads, because at Lahaina Roads, everyone could spread out. There was easily 10 times as much space at Lahaina Roads than there was at Pearl Harbor. And the fleet was, in, the, in those months leading up to the attack, the fleet was, it was like 50-50. They were either at Lahaina or they were at Pearl. Hmm. And when the Japanese set sail on the mission to carry out this attack, the Japanese had to train for both, which is why the first thing that happens that morning is that the Japanese cruiser Chitose uh, launches a patrol aircraft. Uh, it's a single-engine float plane. And that, oh, I'm sorry, it was Chitose and there was another cruiser. Two, two cruisers launch float planes. And those float planes fly out to Pearl Harbor and Lahaina Roads. And those float planes, their mission was to determine whether or not the fleet was at Lahaina or at Pearl. And so these aviators, as, as, as much as we love to admire the skill, I mean, I'm guilty of it, as much as I like to admire the skill that the Japanese military had, it was an extremely well-skilled and well-armed military um, force. As much as I like to admire the Japanese Imperial Navy, I also have to remind myself that for that morning, they had trained for Lahaina and Pearl. And that morning, they were waiting for the verdict to come back from the float planes. And when the verdict came back, it was, okay, we're not doing plan A, we're doing plan B. They're at Pearl. We're going to Pearl. And so a point I like to make of, of that I think um, very effectively explains why the Japanese had all these deconfliction problems over the objective was because they were training for two missions. Yeah. And that's a that's a that's a data dump for for a lot for the aviators to be prepared for. And that's a lot of geography that you've got to brief on. Um, there are, are there are a lot of variables that are at work with the two options. And the result was that I think you couldn't because they had trained for two missions, you couldn't expect that there wouldn't be problems when they finally got into position and carried out one of them. And there were big problems. They had some massive shortcomings in the way that they carried out that attack. And that was with them being really, really good. Yeah. And they still have massive problems. You, you talked about the, the submarines. And I, I want to ask about like the B-17s being, or I'm sorry, the misidentified B-17s. What about, what about that side of it? Um, was, uh, I'm assuming that was actually something that took place as well. Was, was the timing, the movie doesn't really explain the timing of that necessarily, other than suggesting that it was around then, but we don't hear any specific times as far as when things were reported. Was that ever reported back to Nimitz or in, anybody else that they knew that there was this fleet coming in? The notorious the way that that ended up being reported was that a call was placed to Fort Shafter, which was the main army post on the island down in the vicinity of where Tripler Army Medical Center is. It's it's on basically oriented the center of the South Shore of a while. And there was an officer on duty, Lockard and Elliott, who were the two technicians that were running the SCR-270 radar system up at Opana. The, um, play, a phone call was placed to this information center. The information center was being crewed by a man by the name of Kermit Tyler. 
The interesting thing is that Kermit Tyler was vilified by both of the major movies about December 7th. He's vilified in a really shameful way in the movie Tora Tora Tora. He's also vilified in a less shameful way in this movie. And you saw it in that he's there and he's in an office and he's got his feet kicked up. And, and he's, he's the one lounging chess. with a yeah. donor or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's playing chess. And I was like... Yeah. Who, who plays chess yeah. at seven in the morning, for God's sake? But they had to have him. That, that's just it. And I, I feel like I know I'm harping onto something that seems minuscule and inconsequential. But the fact that they deliberately chose to depict him playing chess, yeah, yeah. that's presenting a, an appearance. It's presenting an appearance of being disconnected and unconcerned and unprofessional. What it looks like is somebody that's like, ah, whatever. I'm kind of uninterested in what's going on in my Playing a game job. while you're on duty. Yeah. yeah. And the reality is uh, that Kermit Tyler did not actually um, do that. He wasn't playing chess that morning. And in fact, um, what he was, what ended up happening that morning with him is that he had a conversation and the conversation that he ended up having um, with Opana Point was one in which he sensitively talked to them about the radar report that they were seeing. Because we obviously, what, what we know is that the operators in Opana, they picked up the Japanese aircraft as they were approaching the island and they tracked them using the SCR-270 radar all the way until the point that they were lost by ground clutter, meaning that they were tracking the aircraft as they approached the island all the way to the point where they could no longer track them because the ground was interfering with the radar, the oscilloscope, what they were, the report that they were seeing on the oscilloscope. Well, um, the conversation that was actually had was one that made a lot of sense. And I'll keep this brief. They called down to Shafter. Tyler answered the phone. He wasn't playing chess. He didn't have his feet kicked up. He wasn't paying no attention. In Tora Tora Tora, it's depicted with sort of a like a corpulent dude who's chomping on a cigar and he goes, hey, it's just a bunch of P-17. Don't worry about it. And then he abruptly hangs up the phone. On so that's an even worse hack job than this movie did with the actuality of the event. Um, the reality is that he had a long conversation. They talked about things like setting and direction and altitude. And eventually, as a part of that conversation, he reached the conclusion that they were the aircraft that were being observed were B-17s that were flying in from the West Coast, which is, uh, that actually happened. There were 12 aircraft uh, consisting of C-Model B-17s and E-Model B-17s that were coming in, some of them with 48th Reconnaissance Squadron. And as the aircraft approached the island, they were coming down out of altitude. They were preparing to, to pass over the uh, the Wai'anae Range and get into position to land at the bomber base on the island, which was Hickam Army Airfield right next to the harbor. Well, one of the points that came up in that conversation, because I met Kermit Tyler and talked to him. And one of the things that he wanted me to know was that while he was on the phone having that conversation was the point that he made was uh, the formation was obviously situated north of the island. And they said, sir, well, they're coming in from the north. And he said, well, that's not unusual. It's, it's, we do have a group of B-17s that are coming in. They're due in within the hour. And that's probably them. And they're probably just out of position. And when he mentioned it, he had mentioned before that, do you remember two weeks ago when the B-17s came in? And that was because there was this other incident during which B-17s took off from California to fly to Oahu to land at Hickam. And it was all because of this buildup within the 11th Bombardment Group of aircraft. The 11th Bombardment Group was building up strength on Oahu because it was about to ship to the Philippines. 
And it's because we thought the Japanese were coming to get the Philippines. And as we were building, as we were building up strength, as the, as the entire bombardment group was preparing to go to the Philippines, it was necessary to bring aircraft in. It was the process of moving an entire bomber group. And a few weeks prior, a group of B-17s came in from the West Coast. And apparently a common thing that happened was that at night, you don't have homing beacons, you had navigation. Um, and your navigation was back then, it wasn't foolproof. And what could happen is that mistakes could be made during the process of navigation by which, as you approached your destination, you were a little out of position. And apparently the common thing that was happening was that as formations of bombers who had never been to Hawaii before, as they flew across the Pacific in the middle of the night with no land below them, with nothing to give them a beacon to home in on, they tended to Depending on what the wind was doing, they t if they were flying toward, if this is Hawaii and this is the bomber, they tended to, as they flew toward Hawaii, they tended to get blown a little off course and they were tending to being, to being pushed a little to the north. And so what had happened a few weeks earlier was that this flight of B-17s came in, they were out of position and they were north of Oahu. And mm -hmm. the, at the point when the sun is up and now they go, oh, there it is over there. It's on the left side of the aircraft. And they made a simple course correction that brought them in. So in other words, the navigation from California to Hawaii wasn't. 100% reliable, dead, perfect every single time. And there had been this incident a few weeks prior by which at dawn, when the bombers could figure out where they were, they figured that they were a little farther north than they needed to be. And they made a simple course correction. And so Tyler had brought that up on the phone. And so it wasn't him playing chess and being disconnected. And it wasn't him chomping on a cigar and being, hey, I don't worry about it, hanging up the phone off. It was a sensitive discussion about what it was. And a point I love to make to humanize the story even further is the fact that uh, radars knew we had no reason to believe that the Japanese were had just successfully sneaked their way across the North Atlantic, the North Pacific, and to approach Oahu from the north. We had no reason to believe that that was any practical possibility. We had every reason to believe that if an attack was going to unfold, it was going to unfold against the Philippines. And there were B-17s coming in, and he knew it, and they were due within the hour. And so the movie Tora 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 so thoroughly ruined that man's life that he, for the rest of his life, received mail periodically from, he showed me one, in fact, and it was a letter from a woman that wrote him and said, my son died on Arizona because of you. Wow. That man withdrew. He didn't withdraw entirely, but he mostly withdrew from public appearances because he's named in Tora Tora Tora. People saw a movie told him, you know, a movie told these people that he was the bad guy and they believed it. And it was um, something that uh, that followed him for the rest of his life. He was alive to see this movie when it came out and he wasn't happy with this depiction either. He went to, he died in 2010 and he went to his grave very feeling very unfairly depicted uh, for what happened. Um, and the reality was that he was part of this bigger picture and it was unfair that he got sort of saddled with a lot of blame here because people were very quick to, the Monday morning quarterbacks that immediately stepped up were very quick to criticize the fact that this man who basically was unknown to the world until this book came out, this book that was called At Dawn We Slept. And when the book came out, I can't remember what year the book came out. When the book came out, it named him. And when, when he was named, and then when the movie got made in 1970, the movie Tora Tora Tora, he was propelled from being someone who was largely anonymous uh, within the broader story of December 7th. It went from him being sort of 
an anonymous person who was there that day to becoming instantly this um, target of a great deal of ire and hostility from people. All of a sudden, the villain of the story. He was in many ways. He became this villain and the man did not deserve it. And it was just sort of a shame to see it. But I mean, it's like the most what? obvious conclusion to come to. I didn't realize there were B-17s that came in, you know, a couple of weeks or a few weeks yeah. prior. I mean, based They're on coming in. what yeah. you're saying, like, it just seems like that would be the most obvious answer that it is right. probably what they are. And it, it seemed like an obvious answer uh, to Kermit Tyler. And he went with that and it turns it turns out to have been mistaken. And mm. it's very strange to me because, as, as you know, I continue to lead these tours out there and I'm leading one in a couple of months. It, this always comes up and we always end up having this problem. We have, end up having this discussion because I find that if people uh, care enough about the subject to hire me to come be their tour guide in Hawaii, there are people that have done some reading and they're, they've done some reading and they've done a lot of movie watching. And so they've seen this movie and they've seen Tora Tora Tora. And they therefore kind of want to drag Kermit Tyler out of the grave and curse him out once again. And I'm quick to point out that there's a lot more to that story and he's a lot less of the sickening villain than they want to believe he is. And they believe that. Why? Because a movie told them to believe that. And that's why I find it so very bizarre. And that's why I value the work that you do in this podcast, because um, I find that it's so bizarre that I am on a regular basis reminding adults with educations that it was in a movie. And just because it was in a movie doesn't mean it was true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Well, we, we talked a little bit about the attack itself earlier, but we're at the point in the movie's timeline where we see the attack. And from a visual perspective, I thought the filmmakers did a good job putting together the effects of, you know, you see the plane swarming in and dropping in torpedoes. Uh, there's, I think it was used in the, the trailers at, at the time. There's a, you know, the camera that follows the torpedo. The first torpedo is dropped into the water, it explodes against the ship, um, probably one of my favorite ones is when it, it drops a, a bomb, you know, not a torpedo, but an actual bomb that uh, goes all the way down, impacts the ship below. Uh, and of course, as, as we've talked about, it, the movie also portrays that the Americans just seem to be shocked into the reality of the situation of what's happening. It's, they think it's a drill and all the, until all these explosions start erupting, a lot of them are just waking up. You know, the sailors are sleeping on the ships and they wake up. It just seems to be pure chaos. Overall, how well do you think the movie did showing the attack itself at Pearl Harbor? It didn't do well, and I'll tell you why. Uh, since you mentioned those 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 very memorable scenes where you see a bomb that has been dropped from a B-5 into torpedo bomber, because that's how they killed Arizona. Arizona was not killed by a torpedo. Arizona was killed by an artillery shell that had been modified and engineered into a freefall bomb. Huh. And it's because the, the Japanese didn't have any weapons that... Uh, any the Japanese didn't have an aerial bomb capable of penetrating battleship armor, and the result of that was that they had to create this. It was they designated it the Type 99 Special Attack Munition, and it was a naval gun shell that they put on a lathe and they tapered its walls back to where they were angular. They put a fin assembly on it and they put fusing on it so that such that it would penetrate a deck, uh, penetrate the armor of a deck, and explode below deck. And it was using this method that they hoped to defeat the armor on on American battleships. And it worked because that's what destroyed the um, Arizona. The section where they depict the death of the Arizona, I find, um, especially the moment of the explosion, I find it to be very compelling because it's, I think, quite well depicted. But 
leading up to that is one of the weirdest things I have ever seen in my in my life. So you know the scene, you already referenced it. It's the bomb strikes the ship. It penetrates through the deck um, immediately next to turret number one, or turret number two, rather. It penetrates down, pushes into an ammunition storage room associated with the 14-inch main batteries of the ship. And you see the bomb kind of come crashing through, and there's some sailors there, and everybody's kind of looking around. What, it doesn't what the hell? explode right away, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't explode right away, and you see shells on racks that kind of come tumbling down. And if you listen to the sound design, this movie does some sound design stuff that I'm like, what was wrong with you people? Because it sounds like tin cans tumbling down. It's supposed to be 14 inch shells that weigh over a thousand pounds. And it goes, and it's, they're tumbling down with like clang, clang, clang. It sounds ridiculous. Um, and then you see the bomb sitting there and they're in the tail assembly of the bomb. You see this little spinner that's going, and then it stops and there's a moment of suspense and then kaboom. And then you see Arizona erupt and, while the explosion, I think, is a very compelling way of depicting that, and I don't have a criticism for that, that's not how fuses on bombs work. <laughs> just for the record. I so had a that, feeling that wasn't. <laughs> yeah. That ain't, and, it's, and it's not just once that it happens. It, it, it's twice. Because then there's a scene where our two protagonist fighter pilot characters are sort of rampaging around like pirates over the airfield. And before they get in their planes and take off, where they're at an airfield that's androgynously not identified, that's probably supposed to be Wheeler. But it's not very Wheeler, but it's supposed to be Wheeler. And bombs come in and they see a guy who's, of course, in a position right next to fuel trucks. And a bomb goes tink, tink, and it bounces and kind of it skids up to a, where this guy's position is. A few people run away and he looks down and he goes, hey, guys, it's okay. It's a dud. And you see, once again, the, the spinning, uh, the spinner, spinner, and uh, then kaboom, and it sets off all this fuel. And there's a massive Michael Bay explosion. And my first thought was, once again, that's not how fuses work. <laughs> because the fusing that you're seeing there, that fusing is associated with arming the weapon. The weapon, when it's carried on the airplane, it's not armed because it's really a dangerous weapon. <laughs> and so they're in a safe mode. And you'll notice if you ever see ordnance that's strung or slung beneath the, the wings or mounted on the hard points of an aircraft, you'll notice that the ordnance is usually there and there's usually a wire of some kind connecting something to the, to the frame of the aircraft. And that's the, the wire that's associated with, they would retard that spinner by putting looping wire through a hole in the little blades on that spinner, and then that wire would attach to the aircraft. That spinner, therefore, when the, when the ordnance, bomb, torpedo, whatever, if it, we're going to go with bomb. When the bomb releases from the wing of the aircraft, that wire will break, and it will allow that spinner to begin spinning. The spinner, after completing a certain designated number of spins, will release a plunger that arms the weapon. That doesn't mean the weapon explodes. It means that the weapon is now armed. And so for the type of bomb that was in, depicted in this scene that's supposed to be Wheeler Army Airfield, that would be a point-detonating bomb, meaning that the weapon has a plunger at the nose, and when that plunger is compressed, when the bomb hits the ground, kaboom. The spinner is there to pull something out of the way to allow that plunger to move backward and set off the explosion. In other words, that's how you arm the weapon. Uh, for the Type 99 special attack munition, the type of modified naval gun shell that was turned into a bomb just for the Pearl Harbor attack, you had different types of fusing and they were associated with arming. That tail fuse assembly was associated with arming that weapon because that was intended to be, so it's not plunger or contact detonated, because you want it to penetrate armor and then explode. 
the, that tail-mounted fuse assembly was associated with arming the, the system so that when it made contact, you would get the delay was caused by two chemicals that were, that were contained in two vials. And when that fuse assembly um, was crushed on impact, it shattered those vials, allowing the two chemicals to mix and react, which then set off a chain reaction that caused the explosion. And that would provide just a moment of delay. And that moment of delay was all that was necessary to allow the strength of the bomb to punch through the armor of the ship and then go off. So that if somebody had seen that bomb the moment before it exploded below deck on Arizona, what they would not have seen would have been an intact tail assembly with something spinning almost like it's an alarm clock. I realized that the filmmakers did that and that they did it for the specific point, toward the specific point of having a moment of suspense. And when I watch these movies, I'm, I'm not constantly just, I'm not forever just this asinine pinhead that's picking everything apart. I, I do tend to watch them to enjoy it. And as, as absurd as that spinning fuse is, I watch it. That moment is delivered with all of the technical skill of Michael Bay in action filmmaking. And it's, it's a good moment. It's just not true. It's just <laughs> not the way these bombs worked. However, the, the explosion that's depicted after that, um, I remember watching it on the big screen for the first time. And that was the moment where I just kind of went, and I went, okay, finally, the movie got me. The, the movie finally dragged me in because when I went to the premiere of it that we had here, it wasn't until Arizona blew up that I finally had a moment where I was like, what? because the movie from start to that, and I think it's over an hour in the, into the movie because this is a long movie. It's over an hour in before I finally realized that, wow, that was that moment. And the computer, computer animation of the explosion of the Arizona, I think, was quite well executed. Um, and they, they did that justice. Um, but I had tolerated over an hour of just this awful, absurd, garbage, love story nonsense with dialogue that seems to have been written by four-year-olds with great actors who were, who were given bad direction um, and with a storyline that was weird. And up to the point, up to that point, it had not even jumped the shark. You know the expression, jump the shark, from the good old era of happy days? Um, the movie jumps the shark when you have two fighter pilots who suddenly become bomber pilots and get assigned to the Doolittle Raid. That's a, that's a jump the shark moment that I remember when it happened in the movie. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Where you will have people like me, like when I sat down to watch that movie the night, I wanted that movie to be so good. And I was ready to overlook problems. And they piled the problems on me so deep that I was just annoyed. Uh, even with periodic cuts to, you know, the, the girl squad, the nurses, mm -hmm. who are all just like devastatingly beautiful women. And what's funny to me, too, is that they have this one actress in there, Sarah Rue, who at the time, she was, she was the chubby nurse. She is, since then, she's very, she's lost a lot of weight. She's very thin now. But even when she was chubby in the movie, she's still just beautiful. She's still spectacularly attractive as an overweight woman. And so you have these beautiful women. And even that was annoying to me because beautiful women and they were, they're great actors. For God's sake, like there is this, like, I feel like I should find them for their underuse of Jennifer Garner and her acting ability because she's a great actress. 
And she's turned, what is she in this movie? She's turned into a girl who always looks a little frumpy and wears little glasses. And she's the nerd friend that's in the girl group where you have a representative example of every type of girl and every girl buddy flick. Just as you have a group of army fighter pilots and you've got every guy in that, the guy who's constantly trying to talk nurses into going home with him. And you have the guy that stutters a lot, but he develops this kind of quaint and cute little relationship with one of the nurses. And then you have the obvious male romantic lead and the obvious female romantic lead where all of it was just syrupy in its sweetness and it was too much and it was absurd and I had a hard time digesting all of it. And that was even with like the best possible cinematography and these amazingly beautiful and attractive people. And they still made me hate it and hate every minute of it. Ah, uh, and I can't just continue to dump on this movie like this and talk about terrible acting and terrible dialogue and terrible story, but it's terrible. And all of those things in ways that my vocabulary struggles to provide different words that, that adequately express the depth of disappointment that I feel in looking at this movie again. And that disappointment is in, first of all, its quality as a movie, which I think is deeply disappointing. And then the fact that it just had this open, arrogant contempt for historical accuracy made it something that I still struggle with. I still watch it and I keep watching it every year. And I think I write part of it off in my mind as like, it's important for me to understand the psychocultural um, phenomenon that's at work here. But part of me keeps thinking that there have been movies in my life where the first five times I watched them, I hate them. And then later in life, I'm like, that's the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> um, I get convinced by movies and I keep giving this movie a chance and it's just not convincing me. Like I remember um, the movie Alien Prometheus. At first I was like, what the hell is this? This is stupid. This is nonsense. And here I am five years or 10 years later. And I love that movie. And I watch it over and over again all the time. There are movies that do that to me. And I keep giving this movie chances to reel me in and I get distracted over and over again where I just sit there and in the most catty and childish way going the only accent in this movie that is believable is the one from the British person who's using an American accent because Kate Beckinsale is presenting herself as an American um, arm, uh, Navy officer and she sounds like an American whereas the Americans who were born in this country who are trying to sound like they are from Tennessee, they sound like the biggest ridiculous joke. They sound like foghorn leghorns. We have over and over again, it's just a larger complaint that I have about a lot of movies, and that is that <laughs> movies don't do well when they try to render Southern accents. And here in the Deep South, we have a diversity of accents to where I can pick Alabamians out of a crowd from a mile away. And I can pick Tennesseans and Kentuckians and Georgians out of a crowd from miles away because we're all very, very different. And for God's sake, I live in Louisiana, which is practically its own language in a way. And yet, what do they do every time they have a movie where they have Southerners? Everybody talks like this and everybody has these absurdly exaggerated like the cartoons. <laughs> they talk like Gomer Pyle. They have these exaggerated cartoonish accents. And I personally find that deeply annoying. I'll stop on that. But <laughs> The movie, it very quickly gets under my skin. I mean, basically from the opening um, over matters like you're seeing the, the two kids playing in the hangar that, that will ultimately become our protagonist characters in the creepy love triangle. But the two of them are um, 
watching this crop dusting aircraft fly overhead at a time when crop dusting aircraft didn't exist in the United States. And the aircraft that they depict is flying overhead and crop dusting is an airplane that didn't exist until the 1930s. And the other is supposed to be in the 1920s. And yeah, I can, I can like look away from little minor inadequacies like that. But then they cut to their adults now and they're both army fighter pilots and they're engaged, engaged in this little act of this game of chicken oh, yeah. where they're flying yeah. toward each other. Yep. Yep. And what kills me is that every time I forget and every time I just get a little, I feel a little vomit come up because it cuts to a shot of a P-40. And I was like, hey, this movie's got P-40s in it. That's awesome. I can't wait to watch this. And it cuts to um, something that says Mitchell Field, New York, January 1941. And it cuts to a shot that is very obviously Southern California with hills in the background during the, during the summer months. And then it's got all this interaction of the, it plays up this, 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 this nauseating trope of these show off flyboys are out here misbehaving. And then the, then the sort of scowling and scolding officer of like, ah, I'm, those boys are in deep trouble. And you cut to all of these absurd cliches. Um, and it's all in Southern California and it's supposed to be Mitchell Field on Long Island in the middle of, in the bleak midwinter. And it's Southern California with, the the hills in the background and it's i remember when that happened when the movie when the movie got underway i was sort of ready to forgive the whole that pre-scene of the two boys when they were kids and then they accidentally fly briefly in this steerman that has that doesn't exist for another decade and then they have this big moment of dialogue with the one father who fought the germans in world war one and he talks with an accent like this and that guy it's actually this excellent actor. What is his name? Oh, is it Victor? I think it's Victor. Is it? Um, he's actually such a great actor. William Victor, yeah. William and he plays Danny's father in the movie. And Victor, who is like freaking great in a movie that came out later that year, because I have to remind myself that what was this calendar year? In May, it was Pearl Harbor. In September, it was September 11th, followed by Band of Brothers followed by Black Hawk Down. Hmm. And I'm sorry, but the movies that came out later in the year attracted much more of my attention than this one did. Because, let's face it, I think Black Hawk Down is one of the finest military movies that's ever been made. Hmm. There are so few negatives that can be uttered about that movie. That movie is perfection on so many levels with so many good actors and so much good acting and Victor, who was also in this, playing this ridiculous joke of, I'm a Southerner, but I'm a traumatized World War I veteran. And he, and he was directed by a poor director who didn't use him well. And then he had, for God's sake, Ridley Scott directed him in Black Hawk Down. And he's absolutely excellent. I mean, that movie, I just, I have nothing negative to say about that movie, but that's not why we're here. <laughs> we're here to talk about Pearl Harbor, which is so weird to watch the way that it just abused these actors. Um, but the the fact that I'm now moaning endlessly about the opening character establishing scene of the two boys is um, it's overlooking the two movies that I think we should be talking about. Because if there's one good thing that, Pearl Harbor 2001 did is that it created opportunities for uh, satire. And I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Walk Hard, which mm -hmm. was a satire of the Johnny Cash 
Biopic. Okay. 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 I, I, yeah. I don't. I don't. I never saw it, but I. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Please go watch it because if you watch it now, what you'll pick up on very quickly is that they have a whole character development scene. The whole thing is just a ridiculous, over-the-top comedy satire, and it's slightly hysterical. But they have an opening scene that is satiring the opening scene from Pearl Harbor. Oh, really? <laughs> it's got two kid actors horsing around, and it's so funny, and it fascinates me that this movie so quickly entered our cultural zeitgeist as a joke. <laughs> It so quickly slid into our cultural zeitgeist that movies very quickly started taking punches at it, um, which leads us to The Elephant in the Room, which is the greatest motion picture ever made in human history, which is Team America. <laughs> Team America is basically nothing but one long, drawn-out, satirical commentary about Pearl Harbor, even to the point that it includes a song that includes the lyrics, Pearl Harbor sucked, but I miss you. And why is it that Michael Bay is still allowed to make movies? That's a line in the song. And um, what else? Oh, yeah. They missed the point. Almost like Michael Bay missed the point of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> the, the, the comedy gold is just endless. And it's almost like at the time, I remember I couldn't. I just walked away that night. And again, I had dragged my uncle from Mobile to go sit through this movie with me at this premiere. And it was such a, such a profound disappointment. And I couldn't see into the future to realize that um, the guys who brought us South Park would provide, would give me this gift. And this gift is just a few years away. And if you can hang on, it'll suddenly make all of the misery that came from sitting through Pearl Harbor worth it. Because that is exactly what Team America did. It made it all worth it. <laughs> Well, you, you're talking about the kind of the setup with the two two boys there. And um, of course, that's Danny and Rafe, the characters in the uh, film. Um, but we we see them kind of, as you mentioned again earlier, they're, uh, they're pilots and then they end up uh, actually taking off over the uh, during the attack itself. They end up shooting down, I think, um, for, I think there, there was even a scene where the, the planes, they manage, they do the chicken thing again, and then the Japanese planes collide in midair because of it, you know, that kind of thing. And they shoot down some more, um, and they, I think there's a line of dialogue or something in there that mentions that they ended up shooting down seven Japanese planes. Of course, they end up making it back safely. Were there actually any American planes that made it into the air during the attack? There were several, and I've written a lot about this subject because I knew several of the pilots. The one that I knew the best was a man named Harry Brown. The U.S. Army's 47th Pursuit Squadron was a squadron of uh, P-40 and P-36 aircraft that were based on Oahu at the time of the attack. They were based regularly, permanently at Wheeler Army Airfield in the center of the island right next to Schofield Barracks. But they had been moved on a temporary basis to a remote area on the north side of the island near the town of Aliiva to what was designated at the time, what was ultimately designated Aliiva Auxiliary Airfield. And it was a grass strip at the time, and they had been moved up there for the purposes of carrying out uh, qualification with the weapon systems on board the aircraft. And so the P-36 aircraft that the squadron operated and the P-40 aircraft that they operated were equipped with thirty caliber A and M two thirty caliber machine guns and A and M two fifty caliber machine guns. And part of developing your skill as um, an effective fighter pilot was that you had to conduct some live fire training from time to time. And the result then was that 
this squadron in preparation for what they knew was coming. And just for the record, they knew they were getting sent to the Philippines. And part of the reason that they sent them up to Aliiva, which was just a grass strip right on the edge of the water near the, near the town, part of the reason that they were sent up there was so that they could undergo um, some training in soft field or remote airfield operations. Because it was understood that once, the, um, once we go to war and we're going to be fighting in the Philippines, we're going to move squadrons to the Philippines and they're probably not going to be able to operate out of an actual airbase. They're probably going to be operating out of um, like soft field. They're going to pick a field somewhere and the squadron's going to set up shop and fly out of that. And they're probably going to have to move a lot. And so it was understood that part of the squadron's readiness was to train and to experience operating from a remote airfield. And so mm -hmm. they put the airplanes and the, and the maintainers um, up there. And they were up there for the entirety of the alert from November 20th to December 4th. And um, then at the end of the alert, the alert, the squadron was still staying up there, but the pilots could go back to Wheeler Army Airfield, which was just 12 miles away to the south. I mean, it's not even that far, maybe eight miles away to the south. And the aviators could be in the BOQ, the bachelor officer's quarters. Um, and the squadron commander could go home to the wife, the squadron executive officer could go home to the wife at, at Wheeler. Um, but everybody else stayed with the aircraft up at Oliva. When the attack began, um, several of these pilots, um, Welch, Taylor, Brown, Danes, Rasmussen, he was in another squadron, but he was one of the guys that got airborne. Um, there were about a dozen pilots that got airborne. The two most memorable are George Taylor and Kenneth Welch. Um, and it was because the two of them both shot down uh, multiple aircraft that day. Harry Brown in a P-36 shot down one confirmed with one probable. probable it's, he probably shot down a second aircraft as well. And all of these pilots were ultimately decorated for what they did that day. Hmm. And um, an interesting detail emerges in that when they were, there was a shortage of 50 caliber ammunition on the Wahoo at the time because they were under war emergency. Oh, okay. so. There was, uh, they had, they had finite quantities of ammunition and all of the small caliber, uh, all of the small caliber system and calibers. And um, that was being held back for the emergency reserve in the event that there was an attack. And that attack during the era of the, um, the full alert, that attack never presents itself. And so um, the aircraft are still up at Oliva. And all they have is 30 caliber ammunition up there because the 50 caliber, the more powerful 50 caliber ammunition, the more effective 50 caliber ammunition was being, was being hoarded at Wheeler Army Airfield um, just in the event that there was a war. And so when the attack began, these pilots who had gone out the night before on Waikiki and gone to play cards at the Royal Hawaiian, and then they came back to Wheeler, they got back to Wheeler and stumbled back into the BOQ um, a, an hour or two before the attack began. Um, these pilots got there once the attack begins with bombs falling on Wheeler at 7.52 a.m., I think it was. They jump into a car and drive to Aliiva, drive eight miles up to Aliiva, where they have their maintainers there who have the aircraft are fueled. They, they armed the aircraft with what they could, which was 30 caliber ammunition only. And so these pilots all took off. Um, Taylor and Welch take off and immediately they attack a couple of aircraft and immediately then fly down to Wheeler Army Airfield and land because they know the 50 caliber ammunition is at Wheeler and they taxied to this like forward 
uh, rearming point that was set up in a tent along the airfield because they were they had just come off of this readiness alert. And the readiness alert for fighter pilots meant that they created an emergency um, rearming point right next to the airfield so that if they had to fly a combat mission, they could they could taxi the aircraft right up to this rearming point and the ammunition was there. They could put it in the aircraft and it would get the get an armed aircraft into the air more quickly. And so Taylor and Welch um, immediately flew down and landed there, which is when this charming story that you've probably heard unfolds. And that is that the two of them taxi up to this rearming point in a tent where they know there's 50 caliber ammunition and they want 50 for the guns in the P-40 because it's the more powerful weapon. And they, they, they taxi up to it. They tell the men there they need 50 cal. They start to load the aircraft. A major comes up and says, who are you men and what are you doing here? That, that ammunition's on short. It's like the war's on. And they, he was literally scolding them for loading their aircraft with 50 caliber ammunition while Japanese aircraft were retiring toward the fleet behind him. And famously, this officer storms off. They look at the maintainers, go finish loading. They loaded. And as, they, as the two of them took off, they were wingmen. So they took off in a two-ship flight. And as they rolled out, um, Taylor famously, as he's rolling out, he had a switch to bring his gear up and he looked up and there were Japanese Val dive bombers right in front of him. And he opened fire on them before he reached down to flick the switch to pull his gear up. Oh, wow. So he's still got his gear down and he's already shooting the enemy down. They ended up chasing an aircraft all the way down to the South Shore near Barber's Point which creates this wild story that I'll have to tell you some other time, but it's a story where they are chasing a Val dive bomber um, from Zuikaku and they shoot it to pieces. Um, Taylor almost gets killed by the tail gunner, but then eventually the aircraft ditches right off of Barber's Point and the lighthouse keeper at Barber's Point watches the Japanese pilot um, drag his co-pilot out of the cockpit. It ditched just offshore in the water he watches him drag him out of the cockpit and drag him ashore. And then the lighthouse keeper put a call in to Fort Kamehameha that uh, it went to the 49th Coast Artillery. They said, hey, I just watched a Japanese pilot, his co-pilot, wander up into the sand dunes right here near Barber's Point. And it led to the Army sent down a truck to go find these uh, the reported Japanese troops. And uh, there was a gun battle overnight on uh, after sunset on December 7th and short, shortly after dawn on December 8th, they found them and killed them. Uh, wow. And it's fascinating to think that Pearl Harbor is, is fighting at sea, in the air, and on the land. And it's fighting that occurs even after December 7th, in that one example. Um, so, yes, there were fighter pilots that got in the air that day that attacked the enemy. The Japanese lost 29 aircraft out of 352 that day. And it's noteworthy that out of the 29 aircraft that are lost that failed to return to the carriers, six of them were the result of aerial combat. And I mention that simply because I need to call emphasis to the fact that what the movie's trying to depict is the actuality of the, the Taylor and Welch um, wingman duo and what they did. Those weren't the only pilots that flew and shot down enemy aircraft that day. There were several others. And... The fact that they chose to emphasize that, I thought, that's a cool choice. I would, I would have encouraged somebody to feature them because you get all of the rewards and benefits of uh, two very, very young um, junior lieutenant fighter pilots who get up and fight back. Because the point that I make about December 7th is that as time has gone by, we have more of an emphasis on the way that we were caught unprepared and we didn't um, do well. And I love to point out that we fought back. We fought back very well. 
We fought back so effectively that the Japanese results on December 7th were far less bad than they could have been. And perhaps the best example of the way that we fought back effectively was the way in which U.S. Army fighter pilots got in the sky and shot down enemy aircraft that day. But there was no explosions in midair like we saw with after playing chicken, huh? <laughs> I remain unaware of any examples of, of well, one, one thing I did um, while I was watching the movie is I, I, I timed it from the first from the time the first torpedo was dropped to the moment that Admiral Yamamoto decides not to send a third wave, that the time in the movie is 30 minutes and 45 seconds. How long did the actual attack take? The actual attack is right before, starts right before 8 a.m., and it's basically concluded a little after 10. Okay, um, so a lot longer. So, yeah, and I, I should just point out something else that you just brought up. And that is, um, can I just hit you with this one really quick sidebar? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that, you know, so for all of the silly bonkers nonsense that's going on with aircraft having um, midair collisions and things like that while being pursued by P-40 fighters while dogfighting with P-40s, which is something that did not happen. Oh, and I should, I got to say this first, get this off my chest. And that is that, so 29 aircraft failed to return to the carrier. Six of them are shot down in aerial combat. The six that were shot down in aerial combat, none of them were zeros that were dogfighting P-40s. The aircraft that were shot down in aerial combat by the American, by the U.S. Army fighter pilots, they were either dive bombers or torpedo aircraft, mostly dive bombers. And that's an aircraft that is quite a bit less agile and maneuverable than the zero. So there were, there were, there was no dogfighting and air-to-air combat of P-40 versus Japanese Zero. That none, hmm. and it's because the P-40 was really not an effective airframe for dogfighting a Zero. P-40 was at a number of significant disadvantages against the Japanese Zero: um, time to climb, maneuverability, firepower, speed. Obviously, the only one thing that the P-40 had that the Zero just couldn't. The way if you got a zero on your tail in a P-40, the only way to get out from under that problem was to just shove the stick over and run away from him because the P-40 was a heavier aircraft and it was therefore in a dive capable of achieving a little bit more speed. And you could you could quickly get away from a zero, but in terms of turning with him and dogfighting him, not a chance. Absolutely. The airframes were just completely, um, un, they were not matched well one another. And so the U.S. Army fighter pilots that fly that day they end up shooting down less maneuver, less maneuverable Japanese dive bombers and torpedo bombers, which I think is an important point because what this movie does is it shows rip-roaring um, dogfighting going on between Zeros and P-40s that includes lots of really, really big explosions. And, of course, that didn't happen. I mentioned that for all of the silliness of things like mid-air collisions and aircraft, there's a scene where the Doris Miller, Miller character is hammering away with a twin 50 caliber machine gun, which is the wrong type of 50 caliber mount. And he's using the wrong type of 50 caliber machine gun, but whatever, I'm going to let that go. But it shows Doris Miller kind of following him, tick, 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 and he's like, ah, shooting at him and making all these absurd theatrical noises. And the aircraft gets hit and then runs into a crane and then crashes down. That's depicted. And while that's interesting, that's not something that happened that day. I think they drew some information, though, 
from uh, the Zero that was piloted by Petty Officer Takeshi Hirano, which is an aircraft that was in combat that morning directly across the main flight line from Hickam Army Airfield. And Hirano, there were a number of eyewitnesses that saw what happened to Hirano. And Hirano, I think, got what they talk about a lot in the world of the fighter pilot or the bomber pilot, and that is target fixation, meaning that Hirano was so busy looking through his gun sight at stuff that he wanted to kill that he lost track of where he was in the air. Mm. And so right across the main airfield from Hickam Army Airfield at the time was an area that was another army post called Fort Kamehameha. It's now just generally part of the overall broad sprawl of what's now referred to as Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, where the Navy base and, the, and what is now Hickam Air Force Base, they're all merged into one joint base. But it used to be that you had Hickam Army Airfield, and it was right across the flight line from Fort Kamehameha. And there is an area of buildings at Fort Kamehameha, and Hirano got so target fixated strafing in that area that Hirano got really, really low. He got so low that I think he didn't see it coming up, but there was a car parked on the side of the road. And as he was strafing, he looked up, he saw the car, and he pulled back on the stick trying to get above the car. And the aircraft's propeller impacted with this parked automobile. Wow. Yeah. That's and how low. Wow. That's how low he was. That's pretty damn low. That's, 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 that's what low. I think fighter pilots would all agree is maybe a little too low. Yeah, I'd say it's a little too low, yeah. <laughs> and so when he hit it, of course, he was pulling back. So he was already killing a little speed and trying to get up and over prop hits the car he was done there was nowhere he could go he couldn't exert control of the aircraft one blade apparently was so warped that the aircraft had this immediate noticeable loss of loss of thrust and the aircraft um impacted with the ground and skidded along a series of buildings and impacted with this series of buildings and that was Whenever you see photographs of a zero and it's when, as it kind of tumbled and impacted with the buildings, the wings broke off, the empennage of the aircraft separated from the fuselage. And so all you have left is the engine, the wing roots, and the cockpit. And it's in front of this, you see a, a group of buildings leaning up against the building and it's a group of signs, one of which says ordnance maintenance shop. And it was for ordnance maintenance from Fort Kamehameha. And so the photos that come out of Hirano Zero's Hirano's Zero, they're among the first photos of what's left of a zero that we get. And we were able to inspect it. So a lot of photographs get taken of what's left of his aircraft. And that's when we find things like the Japanese were using American-made radios in their aircraft. Hmm. And they had some foreign-made parts in them that we were surprised to see. Um, but I think that this idea of the enemy pushing in so low that he collides with a parked car on the ground that might have inspired the filmmaking team here to come up with some of the stuff that's a little bonkers and zany in in this where they're like flying between buildings and like over and over again during the the doris miller sequence you're seeing cuba gooding jr's character where they had a camera placed on a higher ship structure than where his his mount was so you know there's that whole scene where Captain Binion is like, get them in to do this. He's offering these commands and do the Doris Miller, Miller character in a scene that's so overacted that I can't believe that Cuba Gooding Jr. did it. He's like, sir, you don't have to worry. You trained us well, sir. You trained us well. And then he like flutters and dies like every other terrible war movie ever made. Uh, but uh, it then shows him have this moment of resolve where he looks up and there's a gun 
there was a, a line of dialogue presented earlier to the Kate Beckinsale character where it's like, I've been in the army for a year and they haven't let me fire a weapon yet, which is nonsense, um, by the way. But then, I mean, he was a, he was a, he was a mess assistant. He, that's what the United States Navy remained segregated throughout World War II. The United States Navy was of the American military branches during World War II. The one that clung to segregationist policies as long as it possibly could. With the result that you had men like Doris Miller, who were, they were capable of cleaning up in the officer's mess, and that's all they really let them do. Which is why it's exceptional that on that day, what this man did in his moment of resolve is he ran out to a machine gun mount and he began firing. But one thing that, that just irks me to no end is that they keep showing, like, the ship that's supposed to be USS California, where Doris Miller was. Um, no, I'm sorry, USS West Virginia. And then there's, like, they're doing this on modern ships just because they had, they're left with no other choice. And they keep showing him firing this twin 50 caliber machine gun, which is the wrong, wrong type of 50 caliber mount, but whatever. And they keep, every time they show him is like, you'll see they had obvious air in the CGI aircraft that kind of zoom in between these two ships. And then they show him and he's going, da, 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 and he's just following them and strafing them when there's another ship in the background. And I'm like, he's shooting this other ship. And that, there were there were losses that day that were the result of um, of an asymmetry of fire, meaning that we had not adequately laid out symmetrical fire zones where we would prevent friendly fire casualties. And that was one of the tragedies of that day was that there were some civilian deaths um, at the harbor and outside of the harbor as well, five miles away from the harbor that were the result of asymmetries of fire and men sort of blindly firing in 360-degree arcs. Um, but it feels so absurd when you see Cuba Gooding Jr. hammering away and there's a ship 25 feet away from him and he's pointing directly at it. Well, you're talking about the, the plane flying so low. And I know I know we were talking earlier about the torpedoes having to be low. There's um, a sequence in as the the Japanese planes are flying in over the island itself. They haven't gotten to the harbor yet, but as they're flying over the island, they're, I don't know, maybe 50 feet above the ground. There's one, like one of the gunners in the back of the plane is like waving off at these kids that are playing baseball and everything, you know, as everybody's just kind of looking up at these Japanese planes that are flying over. Did they actually have to fly that low over the land to get to where they were going to drop the torpedoes? Or I know you mentioned, you know, Obviously, there was a, a tactical advantage to flying low and slow to actually drop the torpedo. But were they flying that low that entire time? Some of the torpedo bombers were, yes. And that is because keep in mind that the torpedo bombers on Sunday, December 7th, they flew two different missions. Mission number one was you carried a torpedo. Mission number two was you carried a series of these, or you carried a modified artillery shell that would be used as an armor-piercing bomb. Those aircraft, the aircraft that were carrying the modified artillery shells, they were the same airplane, the same torpedo bomber, but they delivered their ordnance from an altitude of almost 10,000 feet. Oh, wow. So they were, very, they were at high altitude. The torpedo bomber aircraft that were carrying torpedoes, they had to be low. And what we know is that in first wave, there were 48 of those. And what that is depicting is something that, that did happen to a degree, and that is that it's depicting aircraft um, among the 48 in the first wave, torpedo bomber B5N2 Kate torpedo bombers that were carrying the Type 91 aerial torpedo. That's what that's depicting. Those were the only aircraft that were that would have been seen at that 
extremely low altitude. And the only reason that they were at that extremely low altitude was because that was necessary for them to complete the mission and deliver the ordnance. You don't see fighters doing that. There are some examples in second wave of fighters that get pretty low on strafing missions. I mean, for that matter, there's some examples in the first wave. Like there are a group of fighters. Uh, Yoshio Shiga leads a group of nine fighters in to attack. That would be the Marine Corps Air Station. Uh, what is that? Eva, Marine, Eva Mooring Mast Field, which is down toward Barber's Point, where nine zeros were um, sent in to as their instructions were to reduce the EVA airdrome, they literally went in and they were supposed to strafe everything on the airfield, which they did. They were very, very successful. And they were um, at very, very low altitudes to the point that there was a Marine named Bill Thompson. And, and uh, at the time, EVA is no longer a Marine Corps air station. It's, been, it's a closed field now. It's been closed since the 60s. Uh, but EVA had a main gate. There's a golf course there now. They kind of, it ceased to operate as a, as a Marine Corps air station and now operates as a golf course. And the, the area of the main gate is still there. It doesn't look like it did in 41. It looks more like it did 61, but it's still the same main gate area. And, and this Marine, Mel Thompson, was on duty at the main gate at EVA that morning when Yoshishiga and his fighters came in and began strafing aircraft on the, on the field. And as Shiga, who was the flight lead, banked away at one point, Shigar, in his after-action report, remembered that he saw a Marine walk out of the guard post at the main gate, draw his pistol, and sit there and fire a full magazine at his, uh, from his pistol at him. And Shiga would later in life remember that that was the bravest man I've ever met. Wow. That's how wow. low they were. So there was that, some low stuff going on. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah. if we head back to the movie, um, after the attack itself, we do see... President Roosevelt giving the, the day of infamy speech on December 8th. There's also a scene where as that's that's that speech there, we see men still trapped in USS Arizona. You can hear them tapping. Uh, they're trying to do everything they can to get to them. Of course, <laughs> the pilots, Danny and Rafe go from flying during the attack to helping in the hospital to helping rescue the men trapped in the harbor. You know, they seem to be everywhere. Uh, and not to skip ahead, but at the very end of the movie, it does mention that uh, 1,177 men still lie entombed in Arizona to this day. Can you give a little more historical context around Arizona itself and, and the men on board? And were any of them rescued? There were some that were rescued and there were survivors from the ship. However, it is true to observe that 1,177 U.S. Navy sailors and United States Marines lost their lives on that ship that day. It's the single, uh, it's the highest loss of life on one ship uh, during the Second World War. Wow. Uh, it is, um, prior to that, the last time that a large number of officers and men were, we have to go back in history kind of far to get to examples of losses of life that are high like USS Maine at Havana Harbor, February 15, 1898. USS Tecumseh, which was a Canonicus-class ironclad that was sunk at Mobile Bay, August 5, 1864, with 96 officers and men going down. Um, the USS Arizona stands out as it is dramatically higher than all of those other incidents that were considered massive losses. Um, Arizona is a complete write-off, and that's because of the fact that one of these Type 99 special attack munitions, these modified artillery shells, penetrates the upper deck of the ship and ultimately then detonates in the ammunition storage magazine associated with 
the 14 inch main batteries toward the bow of the ship, turret number one, turret number two. That's why you see in the explosion, which is, I think, quite well depicted by digital animation in the movie, you see the decking around turret one, two heave upwards suddenly by this massive explosive force. And it's because what has happened is that bomb has exploded in the powder magazine. That wasn't the only bomb to hit Arizona, just for the record. Another bomb dropped not by the same aircraft, but one of the aircraft in its formation. They were in these formations of five aircraft, these, these Vs of five aircraft. One of the other bombs dropped by not that formation, but the formation immediately ahead of it, just moments before the death of Arizona. Another one of these bombs hit the sloping armor of the side of one of the forward turrets of Arizona, and the weapon was deflected into the water next to the ship, and it exploded in the water. Harmlessly, by the way, just the same weapon. It's in the water, and when it goes boom, so it strikes the side of the turret, which sets off that chain reaction for the delay explosion, but the angle of the turret deflects it away from the ship and into the water. It penetrates part of the hull on its way there, but then it goes into the water, and then it explodes, and it doesn't even damage the ship. But then a moment later, another one comes down, crashes through the decking. It explodes in the ammunition storage magazine. It sets off all this ammunition. If you, if you have an interest in looking what actually, looking at what actually happened to the ship, it was well documented by, um, a U.S. Army surgeon who was serving aboard USS Solis. His name was Eric Hawkinson. And Eric Hawkinson was, uh, when the attack began, he came out on deck, he had a film camera and he recorded, he was is aiming his film camera at USS Arizona when the explosion occurred. And you see a number of fascinating things that occur in the Hawkinson footage, which inspire the digital animation in the movie. And one of the things that you see that um, kind of blows my mind and drops me to the floor every time I see it is that the main explosion goes off and you can see Arizona had these cage masts, one forward, one aft, and they were associated with the range finding associated with the, with the 14 inch main battery. So the one facing forward, one facing aft, the one facing forward was for turret one and two. The one facing aft was for turret three and four. And it was, for, it was part of the fire control for those weapons. Anyway, the forwardmost mast, uh, when the explosion occurs, you can see the mast is thrown 30 feet into the air, and then it comes back down and collapses over at this acute angle. And if you ever see um, film or footage of the aftermath, you'll see that. You'll see the forward mast, um, cage mast of Arizona, is collapsed over on top of the turrets at this this jagged angle. Um, Eric Hawkinson captures that. In the footage, you see that mast wrenched upward by 40 feet as this massive explosion lift, literally lifted the entire deck where turrets one and two were, lifted them 30 feet in the air, and then they crashed back down. And when they crashed back down, they completely flattened all of the ship's structures that were supporting them. So that that's why the bow of Arizona, there's no longer there's no longer a coherent form because all of this mass was 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 hurled upward and it crushed down everything that was below it when it came back down. As a part of that explosion, it's of course creating it cre- it's created mainly by a secondary explosion of all this ammunition. And it's high explosive TNT that's in the shells themselves, but it's also the powder charges that were associated with the propellant for the powder magazines. These powder bags are thrown away from the wreckage of the ship when the explosion occurs. And you can see them in the Hawkinson footage and they're cooking off one after the other. So they're thrown out of the ship and you're seeing these smaller explosions taking place as these bags of powder sail through the air, but they're smoldering and then they pop. And there are about a dozen or so of them. You can also in the Hawkinson footage see that 
the explosion occurs and it propagates upward, but it's also propagating through the water flow. And you see this, this wave, this tidal wave, wash ashore on Ford Island and splash against everything on the island. All of it testifying to how violent that explosion was. And the violence of that explosion is what destroyed that ship once and for all. The ship could not be restored or salvaged, and that's why it is still there to this day. In 1954, a memorial was built on Ford Island by the survivors of the USS Arizona. Um, it's still there today. It's a very powerful memorial. If you ever get out there, it's on the island and you can walk to it. But then there's the more famous memorial from 1961 that was built over the wreckage, straddling the wreckage, um, and particularly the bow area wreckage of the ship. Now, there was a lot of ship structure that was above the water that was um, cut and hauled away eventually. And uh, that's why you see pieces of the USS Arizona and museums and other institutions mm. all over the country. Um, but that, what happened to that ship, I know that in my childhood, I'm born 25 years after the war ended. Um, but in my childhood, that was a big deal. It was a big, big deal, such that in the old era of um, standard broadcast television before cable television existed, when broadcast TV, when I was a kid, broadcast TV was from eight in the morning to about 10 o'clock at night. You'd get the nightly news and then they would sign off mm -hmm. and they would play the national anthem and that would be the end of the broadcast day. And you wouldn't have TV again until in the morning. And I remember as a kid that when I would watch the sign off at night, because my dad always watched the news every night and I would stay up late and watch the news with him. And I'd watch the sign off with the national anthem and the national anthem was always played with a view of the Arizona Memorial. Wow. And it, it just assumed these looming massive proportions to me from the point I was very young. And whenever I go there, at, every time I go to Oahu, I go out on that memorial and I've been on that memorial when nobody was there, associated with TV project stuff that I have done before. Um, and every time I go there, I feel like I am being given a great privilege. Even when I go there and there are 200 other people in the boat kind of elbowing me out of the way, I feel this intense moment of reverence over that ship has symbolic power that it's very meaningful to me. And um, I'm going into all of this just simply to say that I feel like it doesn't have, it doesn't possess that symbolic power anymore. The movie ends, and I know you've, you've seen the end of the movie, the movie ends with sort of this sweeping shot that's sort of flowing around the wreckage and showing the memorial. And it's ending with her providing this voiceover about grander things like, our war began at Pearl Harbor, but we went on to win the war. And um, I had sort of thought that, it, that the movie was going to be giving the subject to a new generation the way that Private Ryan gave D-Day as a subject to a new generation. And it's disappointed me. The movie itself is an extreme disappointment. And it's disappointed me too that it didn't really create much of a legacy because I don't believe that it elevated the historical literacy of people to the extent that they know and understand what the Arizona Memorial is. I find that older people get it. Older people like me who grew up in the era of broadcast TV with the nightly sign off and the national anthem in the USS Arizona. And, um, also I, my life overlapped with people who survived because I had been friendly with a man named Don Stratton who was very, very badly injured that day and was on the ship when the explosion occurred, but survived it all and was, uh, recovering 
after because he was very badly burned as a result of the explosion. And uh, he received a medical discharge from the Navy while he was in recovery. As soon as, and as soon as he was well enough to walk out of the hospital, keep in mind that he was at that point discharged from the United States Navy. As soon as he was well enough to walk out of the hospital, he immediately went to a U.S. Navy recruiting office and re-enlisted. And I think of him uh, very often when I go there because I tend to think of concepts of service and of duty, obligation, sacrifice, things that uh, characterized the generation that fought the Second World War. I know there are people that will immediately naysay the idea and point out that that generation had its flaws. Of course, all generations have their flaws. Um, but I've spent a lot of my life uh, trying to understand that generation, and I continue to be impressed by the people that survived that ship. And every time I go there, I stand in front when you go to the back of the Arizona Memorial, the back wall is the names of everyone, all the sailors and Marines who died that day. And that feels like it feels sacred to me to be allowed the privilege of standing there. That's a little on the corny side, but that's also part of the reason why when I came out of the theater, the first time I saw this movie, I was a little let down because it just didn't feel like it was a meditation on something sacred and something hallowed. It felt like a big, dumb, silly action movie. Well, it, it, at, towards the end of the movie, you mentioned this earlier, um, and we do see the Doolittle Raid depicted. The way the movie kind of sets this up is uh, after Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt insists on striking back at the heart of Japan. Uh, the challenge, though, is that the Army Air Corps has long-range bombers, but they don't really have anywhere to launch them from. So the movie mentions that they take uh, 16 B-25s for what now becomes Doolittle's Raid. Uh, they take the time to train the pilots to be able to take off it. The movie mentions 467 feet, learn how to fly it 30 feet off the ground like a fighter, uh, strip everything out that's unnecessary out of the plane. And then April 2nd, 1942, the movie shows the deck of the carrier USS Hornet holding all of the B-25s, which I thought was interesting. It seems like they're kind of all on one carrier. <laughs> um, but then... Uh, before they get to the planned launch distance of about 400 miles off the coast of Japan at 624 miles, there are some Japanese ships that spot the fleet. Uh, they don't really know if they're going to have enough fuel on the planes to make it to China, which was where they were planned on landing afterwards, according to the movie. Doolittle makes the decision to launch 12 hours and 224 miles ahead of schedule. Still, the B-25s in the movie... They, we see them dropping the bombs on Tokyo before any anti-aircraft fire starts. It looks like they pulled off the element of surprise. How well did the movie do portraying the Doolittle Raid? Strangely, the depiction of the Doolittle Raid in the movie, I find to be the more compelling and interesting part of the movie. Um, and it's not because it's true. And it's not because <laughs> it's historically accurate. Uh, because it's not. It, it The movie, even in that, that part of the... Even in that part of the story, it continues to have a contempt, a direct contempt for historical accuracy. Um, that's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, but still, I feel like as an, I try to grade it and enjoy it just as an entertainment product. And I, I did kind of enjoy that sequence a little better, although it has its moments of misrepresentation and distortion. What actually did happen during the Doolittle Raid is that there was a, on the presidential level, there was an interest in um, immediately cannot, committing to an attack of some kind that could strike the Japanese home islands because the United States needed good news. 
everybody back home was being bombarded, absolutely bombarded by bad news. And if you think of a historical setting, we have Pearl Harbor, very bad day for the United States. We joined the war. What happened soon thereafter that? Well, we then very quickly were moving toward the surrender at Bataan, which was the largest surrender of American forces up to that point in the war. Um, we have also had a number of other setbacks. The Japanese have captured Wake Island, for example. Mm. We tried to get back into the fight very quickly by conducting a series of raids. And it's an era that we refer to as the hit and run era. It starts in February of 41, where we hit, a, we hit and run, where we have aircraft carrier task forces that move in close to Japanese island outposts. We conduct an air raid, the aircraft return to the aircraft carrier, and the aircraft carrier gets out of the area as fast as possible. That happens a couple of times. And as a part of, as a continuing expression of this, this hit and run era, the president wants something, wants the military to figure out how to strike Japan. The best idea comes from a submariner, which is to load army bombers onto a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier USS Hornet, which was brand new at the time, was selected for the mission. 16 U.S. Army B-25B Mitchell medium bombers are loaded onto the ship. They are too big to go below deck, so the aircraft have to ride across the Pacific, lashed down on the flight deck of the ship, which is why you get the unusual appearance of 16 multi-twin-engine bombers tied down on the deck of an aircraft carrier. As you've already indicated, the, the mission was supposed to take off uh, closer to the Japanese home islands, and the objective of the mission was to hit not just Tokyo, but two other major industrial cities, and that the aircraft, after the, striking these three cities, would then fly onward and land at bases and safe zones in China, in parts of China where the Japanese military did not occupy it. Well, everything went wrong when a Japanese trawler spotted the, the, the task force as it approached the Japanese home islands. The aircraft had to launch 12 hours earlier than they had planned to, and they had to launch several hundred miles mm. earlier than they expected. And what that led to then was that the aircraft were not able to complete the mission in the, the way that was planned, meaning that they would fly onward, and just after dawn, they would land at airfields in a safe zone in China. That's, that didn't happen. All of the aircraft were out of position, coming in over China um, during in the pre-dawn hours rather than after dawn. Were they able to they hit also, all three in Japan, though, before they got to China? Or? Well, the, the, all 16 aircraft weren't hitting one target. So the 16 aircraft oh, okay. launched, they okay. went to different targets. Okay, so okay, um, I misunderstood. And then they so. would continue onward to the bases okay. in, in China where they would land. Um, and, of course, because of the disruption that was associated with this trawler spotting them earlier, they had to uh, take off earlier. They had to, therefore, come in over China before dawn. And in the pre-dawn darkness, they had to try to figure out a way, to, a place to put down. Um, none of the aircraft landed safely, obviously, aside from one of which experienced um, engine trouble and diverted and landed at uh, Vladivostok in the Soviet Union. Um, the aircraft and the crew were then interred by the Soviets in an effort to maintain Soviet neutrality against the Japanese. And that neutrality was an, a treaty obligation from something that had happened in 1937. We can talk about that another time, but... Uh, nevertheless, 15 of the aircraft continued on to China. They ditched. Even Colonel Doolittle's aircraft had to ditch, and Colonel Doolittle himself survived. You had some men that did not survive the ditching. You had some men that were captured and men that were placed on trial, men that were captured by the Japanese, placed on trial, and there were executions of some of the, of the Doolittle raiders. Um, the result of the Doolittle raid 
was nothing like what was depicted in the movie. There, I said it again. Um, and that what the movie does is it's Michael Bay's um, idea of everything because in Michael Bay's mind, every explosion is a gas explosion that lives 300 feet into the air. Um, the reality was that the Doolittle Raid um, produced very modest success on um, against the targets, meaning that bombs were dropped. They did hit their targets. The ex the results were nowhere near as spectacular as Michael Bay would have you think they were. And, but nevertheless, American bombs had fallen on the Japanese home islands, and that was a turning point in the course of the Second World War for the Empire of Japan. Because what the Empire of Japan did in the aftermath of the Doolittle Raid was that the Empire of Japan made a series of critical decisions about the best way to defend the home islands. And the Japanese would ultimately um, decide to conduct the committed to a large-scale opposed amphibious landing operation that would occur in June of 1942, by which they would conduct amphibious landings against two island groups, one of which is called Kure, and the other one is called Midway. And that the idea of carrying out landings at Kure and Midway would provide the Japanese with a fleet anchorage and a seaplane base uh, deeper in the Pacific, but close enough to strike the Hawaiian Islands. And that that would function as like a fence, almost like a cordon that stretched deep into the Pacific such that the United States would never be able to succeed again in sneaking up to the Japanese home islands the way that they had on April 18, 1942, during the Doolittle Raid. So the Doolittle Raid pretty much directly led to Midway. Definitely. Attack on Midway. It definitely did. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize there was that connection there that was so correlated. I mean, obviously there was the war, but uh, yeah. There's an even more interesting little shred of background I would offer about that, and that is that the Japanese realized that if we could take Kure, which is where they were going to establish the submarine base, and then Midway, which is where they were going to maintain two separate airfields, because Midway is not one island, it's two islands, and there's an atoll, and there were airfields on both of the islands. The Japanese realized that if we could take Kure and Midway, that puts us in um, position to continue bombing the Hawaiian Islands. And that is because there was a second attack on Pearl Harbor. This is, uh, I find it's not very well known that usually when I think, when I mention it, people look at me like, what are you talking about? It wasn't in the movie. <laughs> it's not in the, that's not in the movie. They didn't include that. Was Ben Affleck there? No. Was <laughs> the important um, questions. <laughs> yes, the important questions that need to be asked. Uh, but the second attack on, on Pearl Harbor was conducted by two Japanese long-range float planes on March 9th, 1942 called Operation K. And in Operation K, these two long-range Japanese maritime surveillance seaplanes um, that are called, we, we gave them the nickname Emily. The aircraft were appropriately designated the Kawanishi, Kawanishi H-8K flying boat. Um, and these were four-engine uh, flying boats that obviously had a, a great range. And the aircraft took off from Japanese seaplane bases, from a Japanese seaplane base in the Marshall Islands, they flew to the northeast to a place called French Frigate Shoals. And French Frigate Shoals is actually technically a part of the Hawaiian Islands. It's just that it's much farther to the west of Kauai. And you know how the Hawaiian Islands end with Kauai and Nihihau. Mm. And if you go another, I think it's another 400 or so miles beyond Kauai and Nihihau, you get to French Frigate Shoals, which at that, at that stage was an area of shallow water with what was left of a volcanic cone from millions of years ago. 
French frigate shoals is noteworthy because of the fact that there's still a coral reef fringing the area of the shoal water, and there's still, therefore, a lagoon. The lagoon has an open side, which makes it possible for ships to enter um, from the open sea and sail into the lagoon. And the lagoon, because it's a shoal area that's fringed by coral reef, it's very calm water. So calm, in fact, that Japanese float planes can land in the middle of that lagoon. So for Operation K in March of 42, the two float planes took off from the Marshall Islands. They flew to and landed in the lagoon of French Frigate Shoals. There were two Japanese long-range submarines waiting for them there because, again, that lagoon is open on one side, open to the open sea. And so the two submarines were able to sail into the lagoon and tie up when the float planes landed. They taxied up to the two submarines. The submarines transferred fuel onto the aircraft. And the aircraft, once they had refueled, they then had a sufficient amount of fuel to fly all the way onward to Oahu and then fly onward from there back to the Marshall Islands. Hmm. Um, it's a pretty incredible story, and it's a story that doesn't come up much, but it's a story that I, I mention it simply because I think it helps you understand something crit critically important about um, the Japanese and Pearl Harbor, and that is that the Japanese carry out the Pearl Harbor attack and they very quickly realized that they had not done nearly as well as they thought they, were, they had. And they therefore come up with this plan. And it's a plan that is kind of an all-out effort, this effort by which two Japanese float planes, the, I mean, the first leg of the flight was they took off from Wotja in the Marshall Islands. They flew 1,845 miles to French Frigate Shoals, where they put down in the lagoon. They rendezvoused with the submarines and they topped off fuel. And then with a full tank of fuel, they flew another 550 miles onward from French Frigate Shoals to Pearl Harbor. They dropped their bombs and then they flew back to the Marshall Islands. And the return flight after they dropped their bombs was 2,270 miles. So that's a total distance of over 4,600 miles in one flight operation. Wow. It was interrupted by, of course, refueling at French Frigate Shoals. And um, I, I wanted to mention it and describe it to you. It's because of the fact that the Japanese quickly realized, like, well, you know, we missed a lot. They were aware, even at this point, that the United States had this ongoing salvage operation. Even by February 42, just a few months after the attack, um, word had gotten out because Hawaii had, there were spies in Hawaii. And word had gotten out that the United States Navy was involved in a full salvage operation of the ships that had been damaged and sunk on December 7th, and the Japanese wanted to do something to interfere with that salvage operation. And so they come up with Operation K, the very ambitious operation with the two float planes. And as it turns out, they just, luck was not on their side. Luck was on their side on December 7th, but it was not on the day of Operation K, um, March, March 4th, 1942. And when they um, got, when the two aircraft got to Oahu, they approached it from the north, they were picked up on radar. Aircraft were sent to intercept them. It was very cloudy. Um, the interceptors never found the two Japanese float planes, and the Japanese float planes were six miles farther to the east of where they thought they were. They thought they were coming in directly over Pearl Harbor, and instead they were coming over, coming in the island over the area where the Punchbowl Cemetery is today, which is basically Honolulu. So instead of coming in over the harbor, they come over Honolulu, 
One aircraft doesn't drop its bombs because they're looking down through broken cloud cover. They can't see anything. That aircraft drops its bombs south of the island and then returns to the Marshall Islands. The other aircraft dropped its bombs on what's called Tantalus Ridge, which is very, it's a ridge line that's immediately to the north of the area of the Punchbowl Cemetery on Oahu. And there are still craters there from the bombs that were dropped by that aircraft that day. In the aftermath of Operation K, the Japanese realized, God, it sure would be so much more convenient if we had a base operation that was closer whereby we could work and get aircraft up here and we wouldn't have to go through something as complicated as we did on March 4th with Operation K. Then the Doolittle Raid happens. And that's the point at which these um, discussions of establishing a forward operating base much closer to the Hawaiian Islands, that's when those discussions really go into high gear. And that's the point at which the Japanese make the critical decision to embark on the battle that we now know as Midway. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. And I never knew about the, the second attack. Yeah, yeah and- second attack is, it's a footnote. It's a weird footnote. I I tend to be a big acolyte of that story because I think it's far more important than the, the short shrift that it has been given. Um, and I think when you understand the story of Operation K, the second attack, I think it helps you understand December 7th a little bit better. Yeah. And it helps you to understand that the Japanese, they punched us and they punched us hard, but they didn't destroy the Pacific Fleet. Right. And the Pacific Fleet was in the process of being salvaged when the Japanese tried to punch us again. The Japanese had this idea that really didn't recede until later in 1942, this idea that, I mean, there was an idea that they're still out there. They could still attack us. Partly that's um, in place because of the fact that they attack Hawaii, they attack, uh, attack Guam, they attack the Philippines. They eventually, they attack Midway on December 7th, by the way. Um, they eventually then conduct landings at Wake Island, and then they ultimately capture Wake Island. There was this sense that I think has drifted away from us that they're, you know, they're still out there and they're still dangerous and they could still come back to Hawaii. And it's not until you get into 1943 that ideas of the Japanese conducting an attack again against Hawaii, it's not until 43 that those ideas sort of begin to dissipate. Certainly throughout calendar year 1942, there was a big concern that the Japanese could come back in the form of an amphibious landing or at least an air raid. And they did come back in an air raid in March of 42. It's just an air raid that for the most part, nobody noticed. Everybody heard a few explosions. Nobody understood it, but Hawaii was under martial law. The military was training. You, you could, you could kind of go, oh, there were some explosions last night, but it's probably just training. And then the military never wanted to explain what happened because the, we didn't want to provide the spies on Oahu with greater amounts of detail about the, either success or the failure of a Japanese operation. Right. And that's a point about this movie that I think is worth mentioning, is that this movie flirts with this idea of spies on Oahu. And it does so in a couple of scenes, and the most the most noteworthy of which is this very bizarre scene where you see a dentist, a dentist in his yes. office. Yes, and there were some. There and were U.S. Some, intelligence just happens to be listening in on the phone at the time. Like yeah. they just seem to be listening in on all the phone calls, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and there's a really cool backstory to that as well. I, I mean, I can't keep you here all night long, but I would invite you to have a look at the Nihihau incident, and that's an incident where. One of the Japanese zeros that was damaged over Oahu flew onto the island Nihihau and ditched on that island and was um, then assisted by an American of Japanese ancestry on that island 
And he would ultimately just burn his airplane. He would ultimately ransack the island with the help of this this um, half Japanese like a beekeeper. And he would ultimately then be killed by one of the Hawaiians on the island. And he's killed on, uh, gosh, that would have been December 11th. No, not the 11th. He's killed after that. Maybe he's killed on the 12th. He's killed on the 12th. Um, at any rate, there's an important reason for me mentioning this story. And that is that um, that pilot's name was Shigenori Nishikaichi. And Nishikaichi is um, helped by an American of Jap- Japanese ancestry on, um, on Nihihau. There is an FBI investigation after the fact. And the F- FBI in- investigation into the Nihihau incident ultimately reveals that there is some reason to be concerned that um, Americans of Japanese ancestry and then native-born Japanese people living in the Hawaiian Islands um, aren't to be entirely trusted. Mm. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it happened. Right. Um, this would, to some extent, influence the president to issue Executive Order 9066, which was the internment order. Um, but what the Nihihau incident does on an immediate basis for the Hawaiian Islands is that it leads the FBI into a certain level of suspicion for potential fifth column activity, meaning the activity of people who might not um, who might not be faithful patriots, people who might be willing to help the enemy. And as a result of that, the FBI uh, conducts some wiretapping on the island of people who were suspect. Hmm. Um, the, there are also people, because keep in mind, immediately after Pearl Harbor, there's martial law uh, is you know, put in place in all of Hawaii, in all of the territory of Hawaii, and martial law remains in place until October 1944. Wow. And under martial law, um, you, you're, there's a dawn to dusk curfew. I mean, I'm sorry, a dusk till dawn curfew you have to have transport paperwork to go here or there. You um, are limited in where you can go on the island because there are uh, areas of the islands that have been um, annexed or through a process of eminent domain, they have become military areas. And there were some people on the island that weren't happy about that. There were some people on the island who were uh, agents of espionage. The most famous case that we're aware of is a man named Takio Yoshikawa who was a Japanese naval officer who, who um, worked at the Japanese consulate on Oahu. And Yoshikawa was, um, he operated there under a false name. Um, and I can't remember what his false name was. It's, I think it's asking too much of me <laughs> to remember the false name that Takeo <laughs> Yoshikawa used. Um, but he operated under the false name Tadashi Morimura when he was on Oahu and um, he was ultimately expelled when all of the consular staff and were, was expelled because the Japanese had a consulate in Honolulu and they had a consulate there because for God's sake, 40% of the people living in the Hawaiian islands were, they were either Japanese or they were of mixed Japanese ancestry. And so it was obvious that you had a consular office there to assist the Japanese people and the people that were descendants of Japanese people that were on the island. When uh, Takio Yoshikawa went to work for the Japanese consulate in um, on Oahu, 
under the name Tadashi Morimura. He was supposedly there to help people process visa applications to visit Japan when he was actually there to spy. He was there spying on the American military. He is expelled. Um, let's figure out when he was expelled, because I am, I think he's expelled before the attack. Uh, he arrived on March 27th, 1941. Uh, I'm sorry, he, he was not expelled until after the attack. He didn't return to Japan until August 42. Hmm. Uh, and that says something important, because he was there before, during, and after the attack. And he was an agent of espionage. The consular staffs were ultimately expelled and exchanged, and he ended up staying behind. So there was a concern about this fifth column activity. The movie um, has a nod to that, and I'm extremely unhappy with the way that the movie does it. Um, because the movie manages to, at the same time, um, under represent and exaggerate the same thing because they show things like a man who has a special camera rigged up who's then walking around snapping photographs in, um, of the Navy base. There was a man who was a well-known photographer in, um, and operated he had a photography studio in Honolulu. I'm trying to think of his name right now, but he took a number of famous photographs at Hickam of aircraft afterward. Tai Sing Lu was his name. Tai Sing Lu who was Chinese, not Japanese. Mm. And um, I think what that character in the movie did was sort of blend the idea of Tai Sing Lu, the photographer, with Takeo Yoshikawa and kind of merge them into a composite character. There's a lot of composite character stuff that goes on in this movie. Um, and none of it's well executed, by the Except way. The Chinese so, were uh, fighting the Japanese, so that wouldn't... exactly. That wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense. But I, and in the way it's depicted in the movie, it's a character who is obviously a Japanese man that's playing the person that's the photographer. Right. But I feel like that was partly inspired by Tai Sing Lu. And in the aftermath of the attack, there were people that were concerned that Tai Sing Lu was a Japanese agent um, when he was Chinese. There were lots of cultural misunderstandings about this, which is why you see people in uh you see chinese people in san francisco that put up signs at their businesses saying i am chinese i am not japanese where they're pointing out the difference to mm. a lot of people who were very angry and and weren't um they didn't understand asian culture enough to be able to tell the difference between chinese and japanese people and they were blindly um blaming chinese people for the attack when chinese people were our friends 100 yeah. percent of the way uh, but you had further to that story, uh, the actual very real concern of people of Japanese ancestry who were living in the islands who could conduct, uh, who could gather espionage and gather intelligence. And we're pretty sure that it did happen even after the attack. The problem that you have, though, is that um, on February 16, 1942, when the president issues the internment order, the internment order provided an exemption for the entirety of the territory of Hawaii. Because how are you going to lock up 40% of Hawaii? Yeah. You're not. You can't. Yeah. In the end, we locked up um, sus suspicious cases. We locked up people like the wife of the man who helped Shigenori Nishikaiichi on Nihihau during the Nihihau incident. She was locked up at first on Sand Island and then at a place called Hano Uli Uli. We ultimately created basically an internment camp in the Hawaiian Islands 
it was nothing like Park Mountain or all of the other internment camps in the United States. It was nothing to compare to that. Um, but nevertheless, we had the, the very difficult the very difficult situation of there was a significant um, population of people that the United States government immediately did not trust. And the way that the United States government reacted to that. And the movie is nodding, nodding to that idea and to that. I don't think the movie um, depicts this delicately or sensitively. I think the movie sort of um, runs over it like a bull in a china shop. Um, and if I had my say, if I had been the, the historical advisor on this film, I would have advised something totally different. But this is obviously a movie where they did not pay attention to their historical advisors because I know a couple of them. And there are people who are far, far smarter than me about December 7th. And they provided feedback to the filmmaker and the filmmaker ignored them. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, as a historical advisor, there's only so much you can do. I mean, you can provide the feedback. Yeah. They're going to make the movie they're going to make. It's a balance. And this is a movie where the historical authenticity was was not in the, the proper balance, which is why I think we don't see it creating a legacy the way that Private Ryan did. Private Ryan is not a perfect movie. We've talked about this. Private Ryan has lots of problems, but it is far more historically accurate than the movie Pearl Harbor from 2001. Um, Private Ryan resonated powerfully with people. I was there for every minute of it. I watched as, and I'm still watching the way that it resonates with people because I led a tour in Normandy last month and I finally had to go, enough! No more questions about Private Ryan. We're here on Omaha Beach. Let's talk about what really happened. People still talk about it because people watch that movie and it's a known and loved movie. I admit to having had a great deal of enthusiasm about that movie when it came out. Pearl Harbor did not do that. The only area area where I, where there's a noticeable blip of enthusiasm is from young women. I found that if, if there's one thing that this movie did do is it created um, an enthusiasm among young women uh, for, I think, and I don't mean to sound belittling or trivializing, I think it created an enthusiasm for bringing back sort of the overall aesthetic of the style from the time period. Because if I could offer one last big gripe about this movie is that um, there's this squad of nurses and there we follow them throughout and we tragically watch the death of one of them on December 7th. And we follow them throughout the whole thing and we follow them down this awkward path of a weird three-way love triangle. Um, and that group of women, whenever they're presented, they're just presented as goddesses and they're always immaculately dressed and their hair is always perfectly executed, and they have perfect makeup. They have stature and poise. Um, even the one that's supposed to be the ugly fat friend, she's even this, this goddess. She's even beautiful. And I feel like that spoke to a lot of young women, that the, the aesthetic that was presented, which was a very curated, a very manicured um, aesthetic, was something that um, spoke to a lot of women. And I don't just pull that out of the ether. I pull that out because over the course of 20 years, I've watched kind of a lot of enthusiasm. I watched this thing emerge, which was that World War II reenacting existed before this movie. Um, and then after this movie, there were a lot more women that were around the general orbit of World War II reenacting. And they were there in, um, in nurse impression or civilian impression. Mm. And there was an era where 
uh, swing dances were a thing mm. as a part of World War II reenactments. And, and um, I was seeing a large, more and more young women were attending this and really kind of going into the fashion statements associated with the era. Um, but at the same time, I should point out just as one, an additional gripe that it's a very 20th century or, well, I guess, yeah, 20th century, early 21st century spin on what their fashion looked like. Because my big complaint is that these women always look completely perfect. And I think there was a lot less perfection going on. They, they really have perfect makeup, perfect hair, and they're in, they're, they're in styles that look, they're very flattering. And what I see in the um, photography of the era is that, that for women, they could, they could obviously dress it up the way that men could, because it was an era when men would dress up with a zoot suit and put on a really dashing appearance and women could get dressed up too. And I found that within the framework of their everyday lives, they don't look like these women look in this movie. Every single scene, these women are just perfect. And I feel like it's a little misleading and it's a little inaccurate. Um, I did a, a great deal of work on what I think is probably my greatest legacy project as an historian in my lifetime, which was I had been involved with a piece of color film footage that was recorded during the attack. Um, maybe I sent it to you. I don't remember if I did, but I made an, a, a YouTube video about it. It's a couple that were at Hickam Army Airfield during the attack, Harold and Ada Oberg, mm. and they had a camera and they had color film stock and they recorded the only color film footage of the Japanese attack. What they got footage of was mostly aftermath and a bunch of billowing smoke clouds. Um, so it's not, it wasn't appealing enough to TV producers to get a documentary film made, which is why I ended up making a documentary, a documentary myself. And their story is still very, very interesting to me. And I spent a lot of time getting to know them, where they were, everywhere they were at every minute of the passing day on December 7th. And it was me following him. And he was in uniform because he was in the 11th Bombardment Group at Hickam. And me following her as the spouse, as the civilian, the, as the army wife, and everywhere she went. And I ended up with a um, sort of a significant body of photography of her in Hawaii before the attack. She shows up on camera a couple of times um, during the attack. And then there's, I have footage and photographs of her after the attack before she finally went home. She didn't go home until February 42. And she doesn't look like these women in this movie. She had like obviously like house coat work around the house type outfits. Huh. There are photos of them when they were going out on the town and she looked spectacular. And then there are photos of her when it was obviously hot out and she wanted to dress in something that was made sense. And she's not wearing makeup and she doesn't have perfectly manicured hair in a blowout uh, where her hair looks a little frizzy and it looks a little unkempt. And um, I feel like in this sense, this, this is a three-hour-long music video in many respects because it's, you're bombarded constantly by beautiful people. I mean, there are a lot of people in this movie that aren't beautiful people because certainly you get like Dan Aykroyd and Alec Baldwin and you get some guy. They're not beautiful people, but you do get a lot of beautiful people perfectly made up. And that appealed to a certain cohort of people who watched this movie. And it wasn't the young men. Uh, I wasn't young when this movie came out. I would have been, I, gosh, 32 years old when this movie came out. Yeah. And to me, I was just like, get this thing away from me. 
I just didn't care for it. Whereas just a few years earlier, I mean, my, the trajectory of my life changed when Saving Private Ryan came out and I saw it and I just was blown away by that movie. This movie came out and I was like, Bleh. I believe that young women had a totally different experience with this movie than I did. Makes sense. I mean, and that's the way it is with movies. I mean, everybody looks very different than it's their movies. It looks very different than real life. That's, that's normal. I think that's a common thing for Hollywood. That's why a few years later I had, I was interviewing for an internship position and a a woman named Amanda was interviewed for it. And I had a standard battery of questions. And the number one question was what got you interested in world war II history. And she immediately responded without having to think about it. Oh, Pearl Harbor. I love that movie. That movie's great. And I kind of went, okay. What was it about the movie that you liked? Because I was, I was like already like Amanda, wrong answer, wrong answer. And she meant, oh my God, the clothes were amazing. And she gave me a, an answer that clearly testified to the fact that what she liked about Pearl Harbor was totally different than what I disliked about it. And because I was all fussy about like, those are all J model B-25s. The Doolittle Raid, there were no J models on that raid. They were all B models. That was, that was what, well, I got under my skin about the movie and I found myself a little bit less able to disconnect from that and just enjoy it for what it was. And I feel like that the choice of leading man actors was something that appealed to a large number of young men that the, uh, the fashions associated with the film appealed to them as well. And this, in, at least in the one example of this intern, she testified that that's what spoke to her about the movie and got her interested in World War II history. So I think it's fair to say that the, if there is a legacy to be seen from this movie of enthusiasm, it's not a legacy of, of, of convincing young men to pay closer attention to this subject. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like you said, we could continue chatting all night, but uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on to talk about Pearl Harbor for listeners who want to catch up with your work. Uh, can you share a bit about what you're working on lately or maybe to join one of your tours now that you're touring again? Yeah. Well, thankfully I'm touring again. It's good to be back. Um, and I continue to lead tours in, uh, Normandy. I lead tours all over the world, but the main, my main job is I lead tours for national geographic expeditions. Uh, every June and September, I have one going off in just a little over a month. In fact, uh, so there's that out there. You can look up National Geographic Expeditions, but I also do private tours that include frequently providing guide services on, on Oahu that relate to December 7th. And I'm um, quite interested in that. And I enjoy doing that because, hey, let's be honest, it's Hawaii. So it's great to be able to visit. And it just so happens that there was a battle fought there. And I really, I, I continue to lo- to learn and grow when it comes to Um, my intellectual understanding of what happened on December 7th, because it's a fast subject that deserves to have more attention paid to it. So I continue doing that. But I also do some TV work. I continue to be on a show on the Discovery Science Channel called One on Earth. And I just signed on to a couple of new shows on the History Channel that'll be coming out before too terribly long. So I've not just been sitting on the sofa watching TV and eating popcorn. No, you've been super busy. That's for sure. (laughs) Uh, thank you again so much for your time, Marty. It's my pleasure. Good talking to you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Marty Morgan once again for sharing his knowledge about the events leading up to, during, and after the attack at Pearl Harbor. 
If you want to learn more about the true story, Marty has some great videos over on his YouTube channel, including the documentary that he mentioned in the episode about the Oberg color film footage of Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. As always, you can find links to Marty's work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Pearl Harbor was not the only place the Japanese planned for the attack in Hawaii. Number two, only two American pilots got into the air during the attack at Pearl, and they later went on to fly during the Doolittle raid. Number three, Kermit Tyler concluded the radar was observing B-17s and not Japanese aircraft about to attack. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Pearl Harbor was not the only place the Japanese planned for the attack in Hawaii. That is true. The Japanese had to prepare for two possible locations for the American fleet. Pearl Harbor was one, and the other was Lahaina Roads. It was only when their fleet got within range that they sent out two scout planes to see where the American ships were at. Lahaina was empty, and the ships were at Pearl. That brings us to number two. Only two American pilots got into the air during the attack at Pearl, and they later went on to fly during the Doolittle raid. That's the lie. There were more than two American pilots who got into the air, but the two most famous pilots who did were Kenneth Taylor and George Welch. While they both fought bravely in the skies over Oahu, neither participated in the Doolittle raid in April of 1942. That means number three is also true. Kermit Tyler concluded the radar was observing B-17s and not Japanese aircraft about to attack. While it is true that Tyler concluded the radar was observing B-17s coming in from the west coast of the United States, the movie incorrectly vilified him while portraying this. He wasn't playing chess in the early morning hours like we see in the movie. He also had a longer conversation to discuss what was seen on the radar. As he told Marty, Tyler pointed out that there were B-17s that had arrived a couple weeks earlier that had also gotten off course and arrived on the north side of the island, just like they were seeing on the radar again. And since more B-17s were scheduled to arrive, and obviously no one expected the attack, it would make sense that the planes were misidentified on the radar. Of course, we know from history that he was wrong, and they were Japanese planes about to attack. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help support the next episode and get ad-free versions of the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>